Hello, my name is Kevin Shields and welcome to the Cracked Real Podcast. This is episode 7 and I'm finally catching up on a promise I made, probably maybe the first or second episode, I can't remember now. But I've been saying for ages that I was going to do lists of the best of the last decade and the, la- uh, the top 20 of last year. So um, I'm going to start with the top 20 and I think I'll do my best of the decade. I'm going to do 100 of the decade because I, mean, I saw so many fucking films in that decade and i want to give them all some attention <laughs> so i well i want to give a lot of the best because i mean out of 10 whole years and the amount of fucking stuff i've seen thousands of films i mean a hundred is actually a fucking fraction of the stuff that's actually really good there so i think a hundred is a fair number as i said before i think i might do it in two parts i might do a 50 in one episode and 15 in another or something i'll i'll see uh but for this one i just want to do my top 20 of 2019 um i initially was going to do this as a list like actually write it out and do a quick article on it but i don't really have the fucking patience to do it because i could do this in within an hour whereas if i'm doing an article i'd be hemming and hawing and thinking of how i'm going to write it and i think it, it's better to come more natural this way plus people might actually listen to what the fuck i'm talking about because i mean if you have like big lists that i've like i've written a list before and i imagine like i've done because I've gone on to the likes of IndieWire and all these websites to do like top 100 of the decade, top 100 of the year and all this. And I pretty much just scroll through them. I just read the names of the films. I don't really read what they're saying. Unless it's a writer I like. And I assume a lot of people do the same with me. Because I've done some long lists. I mean, I've done some... The, probably the longest list I've ever written was the top 100 films Arrow should release. Uh, although I nearly extend that to a lot of the other independent labels now. Um, but I might put a link to that soon but i i do kind of want to tweak it a bit because i wrote that in 2016 i burnt my brain to a fucking crisp doing it <coughs> excuse me um so i assume people would do the same for me they just scroll through it and think okay yeah i know it isn't top 20 are now but with this you get to actually hear me talk about it and you kind of have to listen because you could skip in and think i oh, must be at number one now and i'm only at number eight so there you go um i am going to talk about a few other things beforehand um very briefly because i mean this could take a while so i i want to do it as quickly as i can but i have some uh, my joke of a notes that i usually fucking write down here which is just one word things one of them is uh hunters new series i started on amazon on friday just gone quite annoying how they released that because for weeks now i've been seeing ads for it and posters and just saying hunter is coming soon and it just drops out of nowhere like i know that is kind of cool but it's also like i was waiting for ages i wasn't sure when it was going to come out I mean, it's a nice surprise. Maybe I shouldn't really be fucking complaining about it, but it's more that I would have liked to have had a fucking date so I know when it's coming out. Uh, But I've watched the first two episodes. The first episode was 90 minutes. I thought it was going to go down another sort of uh, too old to die young route where every episode was a feature length, but the second episode was just a regular hour. Um, Really, really interesting concept. Apparently based loosely on some true stuff. I don't know whether because it's Holocaust-based, they're just using that as their basis for oh yeah, this is based on a true story, or is it because there was actually a group of people in the 70s doing this? The basic plot of it is, it's set in the 70s, and you have Al Pacino, who's leading a group of Jewish people, I think mostly Jewish people anyway, who have banded together to create a a group of hunters who hunt down Nazis from World War II who have snuck into America after the war. Uh, Most of them like war criminals, doctors, all that kind of horrible shit, so they're basically a crew of lads gathered together who are going to fucking take them all out. That That's the basic premise of it. And I think 
I know. I remember hearing some kind of story about some guy who claimed he was a Nazi hunter back in the day. I think it might be based on maybe his writings or whatever the fuck. But it uh, the first episode seemed quite believable and very entertaining. Second episode was still good, but it it, it felt a lot more schlocky and more silly. So that was kind of unfortunate because there was such a kind of serious tone to the first one. There was some kind of funny lines or whatever else, and there is the, the way it's sort of. Uh, presented as kind of over the top but it, it did feel a bit more grounded the second episode already felt like it had gone down like a, a sort of like that show happy or crank or something it felt a bit over the top but i still liked it uh, and i'm gonna watch the rest of them and see what i think of them but so far it's so good so would recommend hundreds it's on amazon prime at the moment um oh i meant to mention this movie actually i think i did briefly mention it in one of the earlier episodes but i said that I talk about it this week, or well, I wanted to have this actually out by Friday, but fuck it, things happen, um, or don't happen, evidently. But there was a movie that I got to see about a month ago called Greed. It's a, a new film from Michael Winterbottom, and it stars Steve Coogan. And actually, Michael Winterbottom has had a fucking interesting track record. All this stuff's actually quite good. Well, the stuff I've seen anyway. He always has a weird, sort of ugly realism. To a lot of it, even though like it could be sort of over the top city stories or just comedies and things like that, but it always feels very real. Sometimes it's just the ugly side of it. Like I remember saw one he did when was it? Okay, about seven or eight years ago, called The Look of Love. Where that had Steve Coogan as well, actually. And I remember that being sort of like showing the fun excess style of being rich and all that stuff. And he's a club owner in the seventies or sixties, but it also shows the ugly side and everything that goes wrong with it. And this movie sort of follows suit, so it follows. Steve Coogan playing a fictional high street uh, fashion mogul called Sir Richard McCready. And he's celebrating his 60th birthday over in Greece, or like on some Greece island. He wants to have this big Greek-themed uh, birthday party, which overlooks the ocean. It's got a coliseum and all kinds of shite. And he wants to have a lion there, and he wants it to be all this mythological shit. Uh, well, I know that's not mythological, but he wants to have that sort of... Uh, like the old plays kind of thing. Uh, actually, the Oedipus or the Oedipus story kind of has a very prevalent atmosphere throughout this, for lack of a better word. Um, but basically, it shows him and it shows his life and how he got there. And he has David Mitchell writing a book about him. And it's him following around and kind of, he sort of gets to see the insights of what he lives like and how he behaves, but he gets to see how the people around him perceive him and what an arsehole he actually is. And, there's a lot of famous faces. You've well, some real people in it. The likes of, uh, well, when I say real people, you know what I mean. Like Stephen Fry plays himself, kind of thing. Uh, Shirley Henderson plays his mother in it. She's done up with a lot of makeup. I was thinking how that was gonna work. Um, but yeah, it, it works well. And then Isla Fisher's in it. And see, I don't want to say too much about it because there really isn't too much to say. I think it wants to go down a few different avenues, and I don't think it really commits to any of them so you have that basic premise and you see his family like his son sort of feels overshadowed by him and he has a bit of an oedipus complex with his new or say mother-in-law um and his daughter is just this unbearable reality tv star it's like one of those was it like the only way is essex one of those kind of things where it's like you're following couples around the place and watching their drama and it's all over the top fucking dramatized it's like a soap opera kind of thing that's that's what her life is like and they're trying to write it into this uh birthday you know those fucking reality tv shows bollocks like um 
So you see all these different stories going on, but then you're following David Mitchell, and he meets... I have to try to find her fucking name, because I can't remember what it was. Uh, He meets Amanda, who's played by Danita Gohill. I think that's how you pronounce it. I could be totally wrong, but I tried my best. And she works as staff in the hotel. I can't remember what she does. She's like a manager or something. And she has it in for Richard McCready because her mother worked in the sweatshops that like his fashion, all his clothes are made in, basically. So it has this sort of... You're getting a look at her side of the story and the whole sweatshop side of things and the unfair treatment, the horrible... like workers treatment the lack of pay or very very minimal pay and it has this whole political message with that but then it has this other political message where there's a the parties have an overlooks the beach and on the beach is a group of syrian refugees who've taken up camp there and they have this whole section about how they're going to have to get rid of them so they can have a nice view of the beach and whether or not they should leave it's a public beach and all this and then you just you just have the general upper class wealthy commentary and amidst all that is this kind of funny almost flying the wall documentary style fuck up of a movie with like them trying to get the party start, sorted and the coliseum not being built in time for it and all the celebrities pulling out and all this kind of shit there's a whole lot of stuff going on and as i said you see a look at how he got there so you see a young version of him going around and how he knew how to get into everyone's head when they were working in the, the industry and how he'd not necessarily trick them but how he'd more or less gold them or bully them into getting his own way so it's a bit strange the way it works because there's times where it is quite funny and there's times where i'm just kind of bored there's a the whole oedipus thing doesn't work it's like it's trying to be satirical but it's also trying to be really serious and very over the top and there's, there's a lot of things going on with it it's a big jumble uh, and then for the last few minutes it kind of just hits you over the head with a bunch of kind of horrible facts about sweatshops and the whole industry and it's like yeah I understand that this is all horrible but it feels out of place in the movie nearly and I think was it Mark Kermode I think Mark Kermode said that um, and I don't usually like to kind of use other film critics as examples but it's more that he, he made a good point that I'd like to agree with for let's say because it's something that didn't really occur to me at the time and that's you have these two avenues. Well, for he only saw two. I saw a few different kind of things going on, but he saw the the sort of political side of it, and he saw the comedy side of it. And he said that neither of these things work on their own. Like they don't they don't work as part of the movie, but they wouldn't work even more on their own. If you just showed loads of excess for ages and the fun and the greed side of it, it would become quite boring. And if you just showed all the kind of horrendous nature of it, and the, it would just you'd, you'd be better off watching a documentary. So it kind of feels like two different movies kind of melded together and it doesn't quite work i think there is some good ideas in it there is some laughs in it and it's not completely unentertaining but i i, I don't know i lost interest fairly early on in it. and it was one that actually was, it's it's why i sometimes like waiting a couple of days before i give a rating now i've i went on about ratings there last week i'm gonna briefly touch on it again now but um it's why i kind of like waiting because at first i had a, an idea in my head what i'd rate it and then after a couple of days, I was thinking, you know, there's not a lot I really liked about it, and kind of brought that down. So uh, I think it's good to have a bit of breathing room between movies. But yeah, that that just came out there on Friday. It's worth seeing, maybe when it's on Netflix. I wouldn't really rush out to the cinema to see that one. Um, but what I was going to talk about in terms of movie ratings again, now I went on a big fucking spiel <laughs> last week, and actually named the episode after my 
problem with trying to fucking get movie ratings or to to find out how I'm going to do it in a way that it doesn't wreck my head and even then I came up with a solution at the end of the whole traffic light thing without the yellow light but even then it wrecks my head because I'm I don't like fucking around it because the next movie I'm going to talk about before I get into this top 20 like I said I want to cover a couple of things but the next movie I want to talk about has has me questioning okay would I give that a red or a green because there's enough I liked about it for it to be a green but I also didn't like a lot about it for it to be a red so uh, like <laughs> to the average person they must be thinking this chap needs serious medical help um, and psychological but I suppose that's medicine in a sense I don't know I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, but what I'm saying is, I I gone mad trying to figure out how I'm gonna rate these movies, and I think. See, I was talking to my brother about it the other day, and this is something I've been saying for years in regards to a three star rating, and how people don't look at that as a good thing. They see a three stars, they go, "Ah, that's shite." Now I've been guilty of it before. I remember, although this is a fair criticism, I remember seeing Empire and Total Film both gave Dread three stars, and I thought that's fucking ludicrous because it deserves far higher than that. But a three star rating is a good rating. I think people have it in their head that if it's three stars, it's average or bad. It 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 rarely means good. If they see a three star rating, they go, oh, "I must be shite." The way I see it is, a three star rating means that it's good. It's worth watching. It's entertaining. You will get something from it. You might have a lot of fun watching it. You might see some good action. You might get a good few laughs out of it. But it's just not amazing. Or like among some of the best of you've seen. The four stars obviously really really good. There's some brilliant stuff in it. It just might not be your favourite movie. So four stars obviously a great rating. And then five is obviously the best. But I think two is like yeah it's fairly shite. It might be worth watching. Maybe not really but it, it, it is kind of shit. And that's probably what i give greed if I was going to do it that way. Like it is worth a look but it's not it's not very important. And then one is obviously is fucking terrible. So I think I think the three is a good balance. In a sense, well, no, that kind of kind of contradicts what I said. Maybe not a balance, but I think I think three should be respected as a good rating. Because if I see a three star rating, I go, oh, it must be worth watching. If I see a two, I think well, maybe not. Yeah, again, I don't mean fucking trust ratings. Um, I'm very contradictory in that sense. I think <laughs> because there's a lot of stuff that I think, oh, they should do this and that, and I should do this and that, and then I don't do any of it. But I don't know. That's just the way it is. But I think I need to come up with a, a, a real system that I can define the ratings because like i said before something that always kind of gets into my head is two movies that are totally different that i liked for different reasons that i would rate the same like i'd get okay i'll give that a four and i give that a four but then i'm thinking but that one's a lot better than this one so should that really have a three and it just it melts my fucking head and it's probably melting your head hearing me talk about this shit again because i went on it for so long last time but i just wanted to mention that i think the three star rating is fair and i think i need to come up with a good it's like I need to have, okay, a four means this and I'm going to have a criteria uh, given to it. So if you see a four star rating, you know that this movie has fallen under this criteria. Not necessarily that this is just four and the other one's four. It's just that they both have given me the same... They both have met the criteria that would get in a four. It might, they might be totally different movies. One could be way better than the other, but that's just how it is. So I'm going to have to work on that because uh, I'm just driving myself mad at this stage with the fucking stuff. But anyway, that's a, enough about that. But the movie that I, I was mentioning before that kind of had me questioning would it be a red or a green is Birds of Prey. Um, or well, it has a big crazy fucking original name. Now obviously I'm not going to give in and uh, call it Harley Quinn Birds of Prey because that's just fucking stupid. But the original American title was called Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. 
and actually it's a better title than fucking just Birds of Prey Harley Quinn or Harley Quinn Birds of Prey but yeah this one has been I think I mentioned this I can't remember but how I mistakenly thought it was going to be Suicide Squad 2 because I never really kept up to date with Suicide Squad because I I did not like Suicide Squad I really tried I really wanted to but after 15 minutes I was like I might have to go I'm getting such a fucking headache watching this and Jared Leto was fucking terrible in it I think the guy can be a good actor but he hasn't been pulling his weight in a long time and that was a pile of shit but this is the thing when when that was coming out obviously I wasn't paying attention and then the whole James Gunn thing happened and I was like bullshit he should be allowed to do whatever the fuck he wants and then I heard he was doing Suicide Squad too, so I was like okay I am now interested in Suicide Squad again but I didn't really keep up with it so I just saw Ewan McGregor versus Harley Quinn and I thought okay so this is Suicide Squad too. he's going to be following mostly her or whatever the, story, whatever the fuck and then I saw the female director, I can't remember her name, I think it's uh, uh, Kathy Yan. I saw that name pop up and I thought, what? I thought fucking, what's his face was doing it? And then I realised this is just a bridge movie. So this is just her standalone movie before Suicide Squad 2. Now that actually really disappointed me. So I was a bit like, ah, oh, for fuck's sake. But I thought, well, this could be good anyway. It looks a lot better than Suicide Squad. And it's all rated, which Suicide Squad should have been in the first place. Because it felt like, it felt like they were really pushing the boundaries, but also really... Uh, hold themselves back with a lot of stuff too and that's unfortunately what a lot of the pg-13 stuff feels like it's rare i feel like the film is being pushed and they're like well they're really kind of going out there i just watch it and i go oh that should have been a bit more gritty but this one kind of feels like a, a deadpool movie of sorts there's a lot of very deadpool-esque narration and fourth wall breaking kind of shit and it's it can be quite annoying i think I, I, I did a brief review of this on the Instagram page, which I have a, f- a very interesting story about something that happened on the Instagram page for the, uh, another movie I'm going to briefly touch on in a sec. Um, by the way, when I do this top 20, I'm going to be very brief, and I haven't done any fucking research or reading up on it, so I'm going to just be really quick talking about these movies and more or less just giving a two or three minute fucking maybe recommendation or breakdown. I'm not going to go as into detail as I do with uh, new releases, but with this film, I'll talk about the positives first so which there aren't too many of but all right what i can say is it looks really nice it's colorful and fun and it actually even though suicide squad had a lot of kind of colorful stuff in it it did look quite muted and dull at times this really embraced a lot of kind of crazy colors so it's kind of that makes me sound like such a fucking moron as i'm sitting there drooling looking at colors but it's more that it visually looked quite nice i think anything that's set in gotham will always kind of work for me in a way i love the whole setting of it this one doesn't feel like it for a lot though because a lot of it's during the day and a lot of it's it it feels like street corners of like new york and stuff like that so it, it, it didn't really feel as gothamy as gotham should but it does have an atmosphere like i think when you know like the, the whole final set piece of the movie is set in a very 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 gotham-esque kind of thing uh area let's say it really felt like the games because i love the arkham asylum and arkham city games and I think it captured that atmosphere in the last part of this movie. But, so the look of it's really nice. I think I'd like getting to do a Gotham anyway because it just feels more interesting. There's a couple of laughs and there's some very decent effects. There's a lot of good kind of action scenes and violence in it as well, which is good too. But a lot, there's just way too fucking much cringy, lol random, bubblegum shite going on in it. And it, it gets very grating after a while because when I, I like I said I didn't like Suicide Squad I think when Jai Courtney's the best part of your movie you're doing something really fucking wrong and he was the best part of Suicide Squad everyone else 
piss me off big time especially Harley Quinn because this is the thing I don't like Harley Quinn anyway I think she's an annoying asshole and you get that from the games anyway and I guess that she's supposed to be so that's why I don't I don't consider it too much of a criticism because she yeah she's an abrasive annoying fucking dick and they make a point of her being exactly that in this movie but the difference between this and Suicide Squad is you're getting a, a vastly different amount of screen time for her with this she's I mean it's only an hour 45 to 50 something like that and she's in it for a good 90% of it and that's a lot of fucking harlequin to deal with and it's just so annoyingly over the top and it, it like it, it feels like a movie made for people who are assholes and i mean that in the sense that people who might relate to her or agree with her the way she goes on i just think she's a dick and i think the best character in this movie was mary elizabeth winstead's character of huntress uh, her whole backstory she feels very like the dc's answer to the punisher in a way and like i think it's way more interesting what they did with her character and it's a lot more fun well when i say fun it's a lot more gritty and i find that fun but i would have much preferred watching a whole movie about her i just think it's way more interesting and i think who else is in it there's uh, there's some people i don't like rosie perez is in it and I feel like that it's like they just cast her last minute or something. She doesn't really seem that interested in what's going on. And I think a big gag of the movie is that she has a t-shirt that's something about like balls. <laughs> I can't remember what it is. But like her clothes get ruined. So she has to like go into the evidence locker and put on new clothes. That's just sort of. It just seems like a cheap joke. Um, and then there's the character Black Canary. And I think Junri Smollett-Bell. I think that's how you say it. I hope she's not related to Jesse Smollett. Whatever his fucking name is. But yeah, she was quite good in this as well. Although she, she's really good throughout the whole movie. She's an amazing singing voice. That's all her singing at the start of the movie. But there's a moment with her that just pissed me off. I was just like, that is so fucking irritating. Now, you always get people who will say like, oh, it's a comic book movie. You have to expect this and that. It's like, yeah, but I still want to be, I still want to believe what I'm watching. I don't want to be sitting here because it's so stupid that I can just go, okay, anything can happen. It's a movie. It's a comic book movie. It, it can be, as dumb as it likes and i have to just accept it this movie i want to with any movie you want to be in the world you want to enjoy it and you want to live in that world for the two hours you're watching it and really kind of believe what's going on even if it's over the top even if it's stupid you want to believe it now this same problem came with the marvel stuff that was on netflix because daredevil and the punisher and jessica jones not not so much luke cage and fucking the other bollocks on iron fist these all felt really, really grounded in reality. Really gritty, really real. There's limits to their powers. Like, the Punisher doesn't even have powers. He just has anger. Fucking Daredevil is really heightened senses. And Jessica Jones is just really powerful. So, they all have these special abilities. But they're not absolutely flying around like Captain America. Or not like Captain America. Like, fucking... Like Iron Man or any of them. They're not like these ultra-special super Hulk types. Yet throughout the series you have to believe that this all takes place in the same place where the avengers took place so well, i said place a lot there uh you have to believe that the stuff that happened in the avengers assemble and giant aliens flying around new york doing all sorts of shit and thor and gods and all these kind of things you have to believe that all that's actually happening in the background of these really down-to-earth gritty serious stories and now they only make loose reference to it uh in both Punisher and Daredevil like it could just be like a, there's a guy on the street corner who's like selling DVDs of like 
candid footage he took of all the shit going down with the Avengers. So I was like, oh, San Liz of the incident, and I think they called the incident. So there's things like that, and they're they're fine little references, but once Iron Fist comes into it, it just turns into this really annoying mystical shite and it there's a whole fantasy element brought in and it, it kills it because I, I now don't believe what I've saw with the Punisher and Daredevil to be taking place in the real world and even with Suicide Squad Suicide Squad felt is uh, over the top and ridiculous and all but it still felt like everything that was happening in it was believable with Birds of Prey everything that goes on you'd never even believe the shit with fucking Superman could exist in this world it just feels like everyone is a low life piece of shit and they're just very uh what's the word colourful and uh, I can't think of the word for this now camp I guess but it feels like it's in the real world and then you had this one moment that turns it into a superhero movie again and it just it really takes it out of it if there was a lot of this going on in the background already you'd be like okay you're aware certain characters can do certain things but when it just comes out of nowhere it just feels like what the fuck am I watching if you'd seen this movie without knowing Suicide Squad was a superhero thing You'd be sitting there going, this movie has just dropped so many notches in fucking sense and fun. But now I've, I'm going on about that too long. The Other than Mary Elizabeth Winstead, the real show stealer in this is Ewan McGregor. And he plays, well, Black Mask is the name that he kind of goes as when he's really being crazy. But uh, his name is Roman Sionis. I think that's how you pronounce it. And... He has a kind of thing for masks and peeling off people's faces in front of their family and then doing it to their family and all kinds of shit. He's a psychopath. Actually, when I was at this movie, there was they, I don't know how they got this kid in, but there's a kid who looked like she was about five and she was there with what looked like a grandmother and a mother. And I was just thinking, do you not fucking... Two minutes into this movie, how do you not realise? There's legs being snapped back the wrong way and F-words and drugs and all kinds of shit. And I'm like, they, they really didn't give a bollocks. I mean, it's kind of... In, on one hand, it's kind of cool, but on the other hand, it's like... Bit of an extreme one for a fucking five-year-old. It's not like you're just showing them Beverly Hills Cop or something. Um, but yeah, uh, Hugh McGregor, I think he kind of steals the show on this. Every scene with him is really good fun. Uh, and like I said, Jean-Ri Smollett-Bell. I'm just going to say Jean-Ri Bell. Um, and Mary Elizabeth Winston. They're, they're the best part of this movie. And then, like Margot Robbie... I mean, alright, let me put it this way. She is the perfect Harley Quinn. I think she does an amazing job at playing Harlequin. No one else could have done it as well. She fucking looks the part. I just hate the character. So I can't knock the performance. I can't knock the writing in it. Well, actually, no, I totally can. The writing in this is pretty shit. But when I when I say I can't knock it, I mean that she's doing a perfect job at playing what she's given. And she's doing a perfect job at doing a character that is familiar. She's just really good in it as Harlequin. The character's just an asshole and really hard to be around. So, as someone who doesn't like Harlequin, I didn't enjoy watching her. But if you're a Harlequin fan, this is going to be the ultimate fucking movie for you. Plenty of needle drops throughout this as well. Not quite as grating and annoying as Suicide Squad uh, in that sense. And like I said, this is better than Suicide Squad, but it's not exactly a glowing review. But this is the thing, like, there are moments in this I quite like. I think some of the action scenes are done well. I think some of the action scenes are quite poor. I think some of the lines that can be funny. I think some of the lines are just painfully cringe. Like, there's so many fucking problems with it. And that's why this is one of those hard movies that's like, I can't really think what camp to throw it in in terms of a fucking red or light uh, rating. Oh, God. It's, it's, it's 
like I said, to anyone else, this is just nuts. But yeah, the film itself, I think, is worth it. Look, if you're a fan of the DC stuff, if you've been following it at all, absolutely go see it. It's kind of a breath of fresh air to see something more gritty and more exciting. But it just follows a lot of the same mistakes that uh, Suicide Squad had and a lot of these other films in the DC universe have. I will say there's a set piece in it that had had it happened a bit sooner it would have been great there's a part where harley quinn fights a shitload of lads and i'm just thinking there's no real reason why she is this much of an elite fighter it's more that she just kicks the fuck out of people from sheer craziness but all these lads are getting the fuck out of by her but there's a point where i won't say how but i just thought it was a great scene in which she accidentally has a lot of cocaine in her system and i thought had that happened beforehand, it would have made this so much more funny and more believable. But at the time, I was just thinking, well, she's not really doing much different here than what she was doing fucking five minutes ago. It just is now a good excuse to have it happen at all. But I think as a set piece, it would have been really good. I think there's a lot of stuff in this that could work that doesn't. And I think that the stuff that does work, it works well enough. I don't know. It's a, t- it's a tough one to talk about, I think. Because it's so middling <laughs> in that sense. There's an, there's enough there that I wasn't... Actually, I'll tell you what. For the first 15 minutes, I was thinking, much like Suicide Squad, I don't know if I'm going to handle all this. It's pissing me off a lot already. But then there are elements that I like and there are elements that work. And like I said, the whole Huntress thing, I would watch a whole fucking movie of that. But it's it's just... It's not quite forgettable. It's just I probably can't see myself watching it again. If you love Suicide Squad... I know people... if. Anyone I know who loves Suicide Squad had a boner for this movie as well. They just It's perfectly made for anyone who enjoyed that movie. I didn't, so that's just the way it is. But it is better than Suicide Squad. <laughs> that's my review of that film. It's better than Suicide Squad. Do with that what you will, because I think a kick in the balls is better than Suicide Squad. But this is more just a slap to the face. I'll put it that way. But yeah, when I was talking about earlier with Instagram and how I have some interesting news so i'm gonna do a really like very brief uh mention of some of the stuff i saw during the week although this kind of ties into ratings again uh not, not star ratings but certificates for movies but i'll quickly i'll, I'll talk about three oh, i probably should have had a bit of structure to how i was going to talk about this but right basically i watched license to kill the james bond movie i hadn't seen it since i was really young i remember it being really fucking gritty and raw and totally unlike any james bond movie i'd seen before and it was really bloody, and it just felt like the, a, a just a decent, gritty spy movie. And it was. I rewatched it there recently, and I quite enjoyed it. I think there is issues with it. I think it's a bit slow pacing wise. I think it's, it's about two hours, 15 minutes, and I think the pacing is a bit off. I think the general plot of the movie isn't the best, but I think character wise, like I really like Timothy, uh, you said Timothy Oliphant, Timothy Dalton. I think he was actually quite a good Bond. He was different. He felt a bit more grounded in reality. He had enough charm that he still felt like Bond. But he was also ruthless enough that he felt like the early Sean Connery's kind of Bond. Where like he didn't give a fuck. He, like Sean Connery's the best. But this, this felt like a good, more grounded in reality version of him. And you have the villain. So you have a very young Benicio Del Toro made an appearance. But the villain in it was Robert Davy Or Davy or... I don't know what way you pronounce it. I've always said Robert Davy. Probably one of the most iconic 80s sort of bad guys. And in this, there's a, a sort of interesting... What would be the word to describe it? I suppose he's got a, a complicated... Not complication. He's a complicated character in this. 
because he's he sees good in but like Bond is basically pretending pretending to be rogue, and he sees Bond as a potential friend, and he's he's letting someone in he wouldn't normally let in to this world. And I think it adds a bit of complication to the character. Instead of just him being him, I want to take over the world. This is just a scummy drug dealer, and I think I think it's just an interesting way they took it. I'm kind of half trying to find this message, <laughs> so I'm only half describing it, which I should have again prepared this earlier. Uh, I did a brief review of this film on my Instagram page because what I do is I do kind of really small, just like oh I really like this, this was good, but really just really condensed reviews. Uh, and I don't say really as much as I just fucking did. But um, I did one for this. And then I got a comment underneath it. From Robert Davey himself. His actual Instagram page. That he seems to run himself. Because you know you usually get celebrities who fucking. They have marketing people who run their Instagrams. And whatever. But this just seems like he does it himself. And he just says uh, it has one of the best Bond baddies. Watch it again with the blinders off. Now the watch it again with the blinders off. I don't know whether he thinks I didn't like the movie. And that I didn't get that. But the first part of it's very tongue in cheek. So I just took it as. He was taking the piss to saying, oh yeah, I'm in that film that has one of the best baddies. So I thought that was fucking deadly. That the real Robert Davey, after only like a week of having this Instagram, I've already had an actual fucking cinematic legend fucking uh, reach out to me in some way. So I thought that was cool. And I thought I mentioned that. So yeah, License to Kill still holds up. I think it could chop out about 15, 20 minutes of it. And the plot's not great, but it's very, very solid. Good, complicated characters. And a good bond, which is the most important part because sometimes you just have, like I mean Roger Moore movies are fun, but he's not a good bond. He's just a weird owl lad. I love the chap anyway. He's so likable, and they're fun movies, but he's just creepy. Um, and I'm gonna really briefly touch on these other movies. So I watched Death at a Funeral, which I've been meaning to see for years. Now I know Neil Lebute, I think I say his name, well directed the remake with Chris Tucker, no Chris Rock and Martin Lawrence. And a whole shitload of other people. But this original version is an English movie. And it was directed by Frank Oz, of all people. Which I thought I didn't realise he was behind this movie at all. Because he captures British humour so fucking well. I mean, I suppose that comes down to the actors portraying it. But the fact that he wrote this movie as well. Uh, oh no, he didn't write it. Sorry, Dean Craig wrote it. Why do I think he wrote it? That would make perfect sense then, because he's, he's pretty much just directing British humour. I just had it in my head that he actually wrote this as well. Um, but basically, the plot of the movie is a funeral for a man, uh, the, the patriarch of this very dysfunctional British family. And it follows the two sons and the mother. And it follows their, or one of the sons' fiance, I think it is, plus their sisters or not i think it's the niece or their, their cousins and all the, the family members all the people are linked basically through cousins sisters nieces brothers uncles all that kind of shit so it's a huge big family gathering and you're following all these different strands of these different characters and how they all come together and i was so fucking surprised at how hilarious this movie was now i think i'm probably i'm probably right when i say that the american one is a pile of shit I'd seen clips of it years ago, and I just thought, oh, this is fucking, this the lowest, shittest kind of comedy out there, and I was worried that the English one wouldn't be too much different just with different accents, but, I mean, I, I was silly to think that, because this is fucking hilarious. I don't think there was a, 
a lull in the movie where I wasn't laughing at some point. I was pretty much laughing consistently the whole way through. Lots of familiar faces in it as well. Um, probably the most recognisable for a lot of people be at, at this stage would be Peter Dinklage, who, um, no pun intended, has a small partner. You have Matthew McFadden, Keely Hawes, Andy Nyman, who people might remember from... There was a horror movie I saw a couple of years ago. I'm trying to remember the name of it now. I remember not loving it as much as other people. Ghost Stories, I think is what it was called. And yeah, it didn't... Uh, wasn't bad, but I didn't love it the way most people did. But he played a big part in that, and I knew I recognised him straight away in this. Uh, he's quite good in it. Um, Rupert Graves, not a big part. Peter Vaughn, you might recognise from Game of Thrones as well. And Un Bremner, Daisy Donovan. And Alan Tudyk. Or Tudyk. I've never known how to pronounce his fucking name. It's such a weird spelling. T-U-D-Y-K. Uh, but he's, it's, it's interesting. I think everyone has an English accent in it. Even though Un Bremner is as Scottish as he can get. And he's got a very kind of posh asshole accent. And Alan Tudyk. I could be saying that totally wrong. Or Tudyk. Tudyk. I'm going to say Tudyk. That sounds less stupid. So Adam Tudyk. He's an American but he actually has a very convincing British accent in this. So he did really well. Uh, Peter Dinklage though just keeps his British accent this before he adapted his Game of Thrones uh, Tyrion Lannister voice but it's just I'm trying to be as brief as I can with this because I know I don't want to get into describing shit too much but it's uh, just really like the stuff even if you know is coming it still has you pissing yourself laughing it's just handled so well really British style humour just great dialogue really fucking funny it, it's like a play I mean, maybe, maybe it was a play that would make a lot of sense actually but a lot of this would be quite hard to do. Um, but I, I just thought it was absolutely excellent. And I, I'd seen clips of the American one. And I looked at clips afterwards. At, like From seeing this. And the decrease in quality is something else. I don't know what's happened to Neil LeBute. But he should have been doing great stuff again. Because his first two movies are amazing. And really ugly mean spirited comedy. So I'd be interested to see what he would do next. Uh, if he would... Stop doing remakes and start doing some original stuff like he used to do. But, I don't know, I don't think his name is as strong as it once was. But, Frank Oz, Death at the Funeral, this is in 2007 it came out. Absolutely excellent, fully recommend it. And the last two... Oh no, I, I actually, here's an interesting one. I think I mentioned this re recently as well. I'm kind of following up on a lot of stuff that I mentioned before. But, I talked about Bad Boys 3. Now, I didn't get to see it. I fucking bought it. Well, I didn't buy a ticket. I got a ticket through the Unlimited card. And when I got to the cinema, my plan was to see that and then go in to see Birds of Prey. But when I got there, it turned out that the projector in that screen had fucked up and there was no screenings of Bad Boys that day. So I was like, bollocks. So I just made a Birds of Prey instead. But the night before, I rewatched Bad Boys 2. You know, I was a bit reluctant about it because I used to love Bad Boys 1 growing up. And this is what I think I mentioned before. Love the atmosphere, love the look of it, love the kind of warm Miami, just action-packed feel to all the, like, the... The action scenes that take place in the mansion. Things like that. And the, the chases at the end. Loved all that. Watched it again a couple of years ago. And it didn't work for me at all. It actually pissed me off. I just found it really irritating and annoying. And poorly written. And it didn't look great. The action scenes weren't great. I was like. Fucking hell. My memory of that film was shocking. I thought it was a lot better. Bad Boys 2 was worse. In the sense that. For years, when I saw it, when I first saw it, I was like, this is really stupid and over the top. I was like, ah, I didn't think much of it. I remember buying the DVD and thinking, like, ah, I think it might be better. And it thought, nah, it didn't do it for me at all. Gave up on it, said I probably wouldn't watch it again. But because this third one's coming out, I said I'd rewatch it. And I rewatched it the other night. And I fucking really enjoyed it. And I'm really surprised at that. I thought it was going to be a pile of shit because, like, the first one was a big letdown. 
And now, now don't get me wrong, this has its problems. I think it's the writing is not that good still. Like the story is pretty basic, general drug kingpin smuggling drugs, have to find them. Usual shite. But the jokes, a lot of the jokes landed a lot better. Some of the jokes don't though. This is a movie that's nearly two and a half hours long. It needs 20 minutes cut out of it. Because a single joke, which for a second you're laughing at, and then you're like, oh, they're still going. Like three minutes, this joke's still fucking going. Just doesn't work. A lot of stuff like that doesn't work. But some of the lines in it are fucking hilarious. But holy shit, the action scenes. This is a movie where every fucking cent of that budget is on screen. And it's not only, like, you see a lot of these action movies that have a huge budget and then whatever else, but the action scenes don't live up to it. And you're kind of like, where did all that, where that 150 fucking million go to? With this, mind-blowing. There's a whole action set piece that takes place. Like, pretty much the first hour of this movie is great. Second hour is a lot slower, and there's a good action set piece at the end, which totally robs some fucking uh, police story, I think it is. But fucking hell, like, the, the action scenes in this, because it's all done for real, with real cars. There's cars falling off the back of a big, uh, what are those rigs that carry cars? <laughs> Car- carrier? Whatever you want to call it. Bouncing on the highway, and just explosions, and genuine crashes everything done practically everything done for real i was just watching it going these are mind-blowing set pieces that would be entirely done with cgi if done by a different director but michael bay said look you give me all this money i'm gonna fucking show you where your money went and you have to admire him for that you also have to admire the guy shoots almost predominantly on 35 minute film so everything he does just looks so much better does the movie have glaring flaws tons of them it's quite dreary at times especially the second half like i said it just it slows down a lot and it's just not as interesting it's not as action-packed but in terms of the energy and the fucking action in this movie it is unbelievable i'm amazed that i didn't never picked up on it years ago but i suppose i've always kind of cursed learning about cinema over like the last 10 more than 10 years because it's made me dislike a lot of stuff but stuff like this it's made me keep an eye on and now these things stand out a lot better because like i said even naff action movies from the early 90s with Roddy Piper all actually are pretty good because of the work that's gone into them wouldn't have liked them years ago but I enjoy them now and with this didn't like it years ago I enjoy it now it's actually quite good so my opinions on Bad Boys 1 or 2 have swapped I still haven't seen part 3 when I do I'll throw a review on here okay and finally before I move on to my top 20 which how far am I into this now I'm already fucking probably pushing an hour I'm 45 minutes in I'm gonna try not be longer than last week <laughs> if possible uh though i cannot guarantee that but I, like i said i'm gonna be quick talking about this movie so who knows it could only be half an hour which uh knowing me is not gonna be the case right so two movies i've seen both i saw years ago one of them i haven't seen since i was genuinely a kid i don't even know if i saw it all i just i remember bits and pieces of it but i was probably maybe five and the other one i watched when i was about 13 or so and i loved it then and having rewatched it i loved it even more and that's the fucking fantastic and hilarious and ultra endearing and just all-around brilliant midnight run it is a movie starring robert de niro and oh why have i forgotten this guy's name already <laughs> especially because i've been talking about it recently because i don't really see him in a lot of stuff charles groden so you don't see him in a lot of stuff but in this, he's fucking brilliant. And uh, you have got a whole who's who of characters that you'd recognise from everywhere. So you have Jack Keogh, you have Joe Pantaliano, Dennis Farina, Yafet Koto, and Philip Baker Hall. And plenty of other people that you'd recognise just from popping up in a lot of other 80s movies. And Martin Brest directed it. Now he did Beverly Hills Cop and 
he kind of just disappeared after doing a lot of like he, he I think he hurt himself with uh, Gili however you pronounce it is that romantic crime drama comedy pants pile of fucking shite that he did with Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lawrence and that I think that killed his career because he hasn't done anything since and that was 17 years ago but he had a good streak he did the original Going His Style in the late 70s he did Beverly Hills Cop which is one of my all time favourite 80s cop movies just 80s movies in general and Midnight Run which is another one of my all time favourite 80s movies he did Scent of a Woman which I absolutely love and Meet Joe Black which I haven't seen but I saw the ending so uh, it's kind of hard for me to want to see it because I just it's such a fucking dumb ending but yeah up until he did Gigli he had a reasonably good track record and two of those 80s cop movies well you could call Midnight Run a half cop movie but basically the plot of the movie is Robert De Niro is an ex-Chicago cop living in LA who works as a bounty hunter and he's sent by his boss who's Joe Pantaleano over to New York to retrieve a guy who's Gerald Grodin who pretty much scammed the mafia out of I think it was a two million yeah, I think it was two million dollars maybe it could have been more than that but he basically scammed them out of two million let's say and gave it all to charity and now the mafia are after him they want him dead and they want him to be brought back to LA to the bail bondsman so he pretty much is De Niro sent over there to collect him and bring him back that's the, the main plot of the movie I'm trying to I want to be vague but I, I see I want to describe these movies at the same time I want to get people's appetite wet but I I feel like sometimes I might go too far into it or I'll be going off on little strands which you only really need to pick up on when you're watching the movie I don't need to describe them but the general plot of this movie is it's a road movie. So they have to get from New York to LA in five days uh, after collecting him. And he's got the mafia after him and other bounty hunters and all kinds of shit. And it's just absolutely amazing fun. <clears throat> now, I thought this years ago, and I thought it even more now. And here's me talking about certificates again. This movie has an 18 certificate. And... It is beyond me why it would fucking have that. I think the only reason it could have it is, is that there's a lot of F words in it. There's a lot of swearing. And it's really funny swearing. It's done very well. And it actually is important to the story. But this movie. How I described it. Is planes, trains, automobiles and guns. It has the same comedy sort of atmosphere that it that has. Maybe not as loopy. Because this is a more action crime thing as well. But. It's an action movie, it's a comedy, it's fun, it's upbeat, it's really just wholesome and nice and there's, there's so much about it that's appealing, that would be appealing to kids as well. And when I saw it when I was younger, I loved it. And I even thought then, I was like, why was that 18s? And I was fucking 13 watching this, thinking, why was that 18s? It's fucking, it's grand. Like, I thought it'd be really violent, I thought it'd be fucking something crazy or like, but no, it's just a really nice comedy movie. It should be 15s. And... I watched it again recently, the Blu-ray is 18s, and I thought, how the fuck is this still 18s? It's actually so upbeat and so positive and good and fun. And like, this should be seen by fucking everyone. This is a movie you'd want to watch with like your kids, or in my case, nieces and nephews. They would love it. But it, it's marred by this fucking certificate now, because it's, if you think about it, it has the same certificate as, I've, I've, I've actually made this comparison before, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Like, that movie is just so fucking raw and visceral. You have the same fucking rating as... Jeez, I don't know what. Glorious Bastards. Fucking Django Unchained. Fucking... I don't know, any horror movie. Suspiria. All these fucking movies that are... Hard 18s movies. This has the same rating as it. And this is an upbeat, fun, nice movie. So, it's a fucking flawed system. But the movie itself is far from flawed. I absolutely adore this movie. And I would highly recommend that... 
well, first of all, everyone watch it. But that if you're gonna watch, if you're, it's one you can watch with the slightly older kids, I'd say, because they would enjoy it. I think a lot. It's very watchable. If they can handle a few efforts, they'd be grand. Because this is just fucking heaps of fun. And the other movie I watched, which did I come out the same year? Actually, it might have come out a year later. Because that came out in 1988, and this came out in. I really should have opened all these tabs earlier. Oh, 1988 as well, so the same year. And this is one that now, like I said, I watched this when I was about five, and it probably wasn't even the whole movie. But it's a movie called Young Guns, and it starred very really big star cast at the time as well. Uh, and I remember that was a big appeal for me because I was would have been like. Well, maybe not at that age. I wouldn't have seen the Lost Boys look at, but I always kind of had Kiefer Sutherland in my head and Charlie Sheen and all them. I always knew who they were from watching Hot Shots and things like that. But you have Emilio Estevez, Kiefer Sutherland, Lou Diamond Phillips, Charlie Sheen, Dermot Moroney, Terence Stamp, and Jack Palance, and even Terry O'Quinn. All of these appearing in the movie. And oh, another guy as well who I I don't really know him, so I kind of glossed over there. His name is Casey Siamasko. Is a Polish name? Could be. I don't know. I probably pronounced that wrong. I don't really care. But it pretty much follows uh, Wild Bill and in the early days before he kind of was head to head with Pat Garrett and things like that. So it's very early days, young cowboy movie. Uh, hence the title, Young Guns. And they were all actually were quite young. Now. I was going to keep a sudden thinking, ah, he looks like he's about 25. He's only actually 20 when he was making this. But the movie itself, now my brother was talking to me about this before because I have the Blu-ray of this and it has an 18 cert as well. And he said, how the fuck is that film 18s? There's no swearing in it, there's no violence in it, and there's no sex in it. There's no reason for that to be 18s. Now, having watched it myself, because like I said, I don't remember the movie. I remember one or two scenes, maybe. Having watched it myself, I can fully agree. This movie is barely a 12s. Now, it probably does deserve the 15s, because there's there's a couple of scenes in it that actually were pretty bloody. But it, they're quick, they're not that bad. Does not deserve an 18s. I can guarantee you that much. And again, I've and I've talked about this before. I keep mentioning how I talked about it before. These certificates can harm the movies if they're just thrown out willy nilly. If they're just given for some asshole who watched the movie and just was upset by something that not normal people would be upset by, they give it a fucking 18 cert. They don't really think too objectively about it. And how this movie had got that is fucking beyond me. Because yeah, they only say shit a few times. It's good fun. It's it's weird. It's like the soundtrack to the movie is like if Top Gun or the guys who did the Top Gun soundtrack record I'm going to fucking check that actually now that I think about it I'm going to see who did the score for this because this has such an up, upbeat Top Gun style soundtrack and it's a western movie so it just sounds so fucking weird but I'm going to see if the same the guy who did the same music I'd be kind of amazed by that hiccups well, they did Starman or they're part of the music department so let's see let's see if Top Gun is here Blue Thunder that sounds around the same kind of area maybe it's not now that I think about it it probably isn't but maybe I can dream nah fuck it they're not the lads who did the Top Gun soundtrack but they are in the same vein as the Top Gun soundtrack so you can just imagine western style music like typical I don't even know what half those old instruments are like violins and shit like that but with a upbeat 80s kind of rock theme it's just really good fun very entertaining all the way through it's not brilliant, don't get me wrong, Like there's definitely better movies about Wild Bill and that whole era, but it's a lot of fun. Again, something you could probably watch with the younger ones, but the fact that it's given an 18 cert just hurts the movie so much. People will look at that and go, no, you cannot watch that unless you're that age. And it's like, not really. That movie's fine. 
these this is why you need to abolish these certs because they're so fucking flawed you need to just have it a general guidance system that isn't just a fucking number because the number just fucks over everyone else and i think i mentioned this before as well like with the wire box set if season one is 18 season two three or season two and three are 15s four is 18s and five is 15s so it's like who who's gonna buy that box set if they're if they're really sticking to the law here and they're not gonna watch it underage it's like oh yeah i can finally watch season two three and five but i'm gonna have to wait three years before i can watch the first and fourth season it's nonsense so that's basically what I'm talking about here because I'm just rambling again about shit I've already fucking talked about. But my main re- my main reason for bringing it up is that there are just two movies that I watched recently that happen to be in the in that category of movies that should not be fucking rated 18s. But yeah, that's everything I've seen. So I enjoyed License to Kill, love Midnight Run, really enjoyed Bad Boys 2, Birds of Prey, somewhere in the middle, Greed, disappointing, it's okay, Death at the Funeral, brilliant, and Young Guns is good fun. So they're just my quick... That's my quick rundown of all the other shit. Oh, and really briefly... No, this will tie in, actually, with my top 20. So, stay tuned for... Well, a couple of seconds for you. I'm going to take a two-minute break. But, up next is my top 20 of 2019. Right, for you, it's probably been... Maybe two seconds, if you're lucky. For me, it's been nearly two hours. Because I had family all come to the house. And it was bedlam, so... Couldn't, uh... Couldn't continue on until that was all done with. That sounds like I killed them. No, when they were gone. Um, so yeah, I'm going to dive in and do the top 20 of last year. Because I realised that I may as well have done this as a fucking a separate episode to what I just did there. Which would nearly be a good idea. But I've decided I'm just going to do it all part as one episode because... Well, that's life. Right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a quick rundown of some... Honourable mentions is the word. I think he said runner-ups, but I suppose that's kind of the same thing. Um, all that would make it sound like they nearly came first. But uh, Some stuff that I saw last year that I loved but didn't isn't going to make the cut for my top 20. Now, I've, I've fiddled around with this for fucking ages on um, on Letterboxd. I've had a decent enough order. Like I think most of the, the middle stuff is kind of the same. I, I don't really pay attention to that. It's mostly the top best and bottom worst. Uh you know, I might fucking... Although I don't really remember the, some of the shit of stuff I saw uh, last year. I kind of erased a lot of it from my head. But I suppose... I suppose I could do my bottom ten as well. I'll, I'll do a very... I don't even know if I'll go into detail with some of these. But just some of the shit stuff I saw. So for bottom ten... Actually, no. I'm going to make that a bottom twelve. Because uh, there's a couple here that should be included as well. So I'll start from twelve then. Or is it 12? Yeah, it is. Uh, right, so... Although, see, because I haven't really focused on the order of these films. Like, I, I kind of just threw these here. These are all sort of interchangeable for the worst. Because I think at one stage or another, when I saw it, I said, that's the worst film I saw this year. And then they just kept adding to the pile. Although, no, I do think my number one is probably right. Hmm. Yeah, sure, you'll, you'll fucking hear it. These are all movies to avoid, anyway. That's the, the main thing to take away from this. So I'm going to do this really briefly. I'm not even going to go into detail. Number 12 was Good Boys. Um, just one of the shittiest fucking comedy movies I saw last year. One of two. These are both kind of equal. I think the other one is marginally funnier. And it's still one of the shittest fucking comedies I saw last year. But this one, I think the basic plot is... They're going to a... It's like a, it's basically super bad, actually. It's pretty much super bad, but they're fucking... They're like 10-year-old kids. And that's the joke. They say filthy shit. They swear all the time. They're trying to see tits in, on their fucking teenage neighbours. All that kind of crap. It's just the usual 
stuff you've seen a million times before but hey they're children so it's funnier somehow dog shit and lo- just really a type of comedy that I hate where it's just I think I've mentioned this before they just describe what's going on and that's supposed to be funny it, pile of bollocks did nothing for me number 11 is the other comedy film and that's Stuber like that was just so fucking bad and I really like Batista too I want to give him so many chances but I think outside of any of the really mainstream stuff like Blade Runner 2049 even though he's a small role in it he's still very memorable and obviously in Guardians of the Galaxy he's fucking hysterically funny everything he's done outside of those movies has been middling to shite and this one is no fucking different and that guy Ku what's it Kumail Kumail Nanjiani that's the one um, yeah his whole shtick just fucking wrecks my head his whole thing is just that I'm Pakistani and I say things differently that's pretty much all his jokes in all his movies uh, at least the ones I've seen anyway so he just fucking wrecks my head but the plot of the movie is I think he, his name is Stu and he gets an Uber so everyone calls him Stuber and he picks up uh, I need to say Benicio Del Toro what's his fucking name now Batista and he basically has to he just got eye surgery so he can't see shit and he has to drive him around to try to stop a drug dealer that's basically the plot of the film ultra high concept ultra fucking stupid I think every action scene and every comedy scene was just eye rolling and painful and I just wanted to be out of there I think I saw I can't remember what I saw after that I think I know I saw three movies that day and that one really stuck out as the shittest one um, but yeah awful would not recommend it after that now there's two movies here that break my heart to, to be on this list but they are and they're two Nicolas Cage movies uh, one is called Primal which I think I might have mentioned on an earlier episode very high concept he's a, a animal hunter uh, who collects like really rare animals and he gets a rare white tiger and he's transporting it back on a boat to America I think he's doing it from Mexico or somewhere and at the same time the FBI are bringing back a serial murderer who's also an ex-super soldier and both the tiger and the super soldier get set free and it's just an action set piece which everything I said there should be fucking amazing but it was not the action scenes are so fucking dull the amount of exotic animals that are unleashed that don't really do much to people especially this white tiger which is so elusive and fucking scary and all this bollocks nothing happens Nicholas Cage doesn't bother his arse with this one. I like when he tries. When he tries, he tries 100%. When he doesn't try, he's not trying at all. And it's actually rare he doesn't try. Uh, there's a, like pretty, pretty much only a handful of films he's not really trying in. He's trying everything else. And I love him in all those films. But he's just garbage here. He doesn't try. Actually, well, i got to take that back. He's not even garbage. He's the best part of this movie, <laughs> which says it all. He's not trying. He's kind of just sleepwalking through it. And he's the most interesting part that says it all about how shit the rest of this is after that this one was my number one worst for a while uh it's called the silence and it's just embarrassing how bad it is it's, it's like a poor mixture of bird box and a quiet place it's pretty, pretty much the exact same plot as a quiet place but this one just feels a bit more because people go crazy in it it's very similar to to bird box so it's like it just took the elements of both of those films and tried to make something here and it was just woefully fucking bad after that then is itsy bitsy which is a spider movie and i watched that around halloween and i like spider movies i, I think because spiders are just always going to be creepy in a movie especially if you've seen kingdom of the spiders that's fucking amazing and arachnophobia which i watched after this to, to cleanse my mind of how shit this was but it's a family they move into a new house and 
I suppose actually about the silence, I didn't really explain what that was about, but I think by saying it's like a quiet place, the same thing. There's these creatures that are attracted to sound and people have to try to get out of the city. It's just as the pandemic's kicking off rather than a quiet place taking place while it's already been going on for maybe a year or two. Uh, so Itty Bitty, a woman moves into a, a new house. I think she's a nurse and her two kids. Is it two kids? Might only be one. They all move into this new house. The next door neighbour collects rare artefacts uh, from smugglers across the world and one of the artifacts he gets back is what he doesn't realise is an egg with a rare gigantic poisonous murderous spider and good setup heard it was practical effects amazing fucking hand drawn artwork for both there's several posters for this movie they're all brilliant but fucking hell nothing happens in this film and when something does happen it's dog shit there's one moment in the whole movie this is the only reason it's not my worst movie there's one moment in the whole movie that I thought that was smart but it doesn't make up for how shite the rest of it is. Really fucking dumb, predictable crap. After that then is... This one was a big fucking letdown. Cold Pursuit. I expected this to be fucking tremendous. Now I knew it was a remake. I've seen the original version in order of disappearance. And I thought that was fucking tremendous. The basic plot of it is... is a uh, What would you call him? He's like the person of the, the year in this small village. And it's Liam Neeson playing him. And... His son gets involved with some drug dealers who end up killing him. And he decides he's going to take revenge against the drug dealer and the drug kingpin in the area. But it's all set in the snowy mountains of... Where the fuck is it in this, actually? I can't remember where it is in this, but it's in the mountains. Obviously, the other one is uh, Scandinavia. So it's in Norway or one of them. Uh, but here is like it's just up north in America. And it follows the same general idea, but fucking hell the comedy was so ill-timed in this it's woeful it's tried way too hard to be quirky i actually think it might be the same director as far as i remember it's just fucking awful how they put it together brutal action scenes loads of cgi and green screen and all kinds of shit and i was just by the end of it just tired going this is just brutal and i I didn't enjoy a fucking second of it and that's a shame as well because it has all the good ingredients i like liam neeson i if it's the same director if i'm remembering correctly which i'm going to check i want to make sure i'm fairly certain it was Oh, this fucking link isn't working. Oh, that's the problem with a uh, letterbox sometimes. It's not as as much as I love it. It's not as smooth as IMDb with getting between uh, movies. So yeah, I think it is the same guy, Hans Peter Moland. Yeah, he did In Order of Disappearance as well, which is terrific. And then for some reason he did this, and it was dog shit. So I think maybe like anyone, they want to have control of what their original project is, and they want to do it their way. If it's going to be a remake, I can imagine a lot of people want to do that. He got his chance and he made an arse of it. So yeah, Cobra Suit, total bollocks. Um, After that, oh my god, this film was so fucking bad. It's one that, it's, see, again, I don't like listening to, to other opinions on stuff a lot of the time when it comes to movies. Because the stuff that people have loved that I thought was shite and stuff that people have hated that I thought was great. This is one that everyone hated and they were totally right about it. And that's The Goldfinch. I don't even know where to start with describing this one. There's so much fucking going on. But it, it takes place over several different time periods. In this young boy's life. Whose mom died in a museum explosion. Or <laughs> that sounds so stupid. They're in a museum and there's an explosion there. And lots of people die. And his mom is one of them. And while he's there he found. This painting of a goldfinch which he kept. And it's become really rare. And It's shown three deck Or not three decades. Three uh, times in his life there's him when he was the young kid and the girl that he met at the museum that he loves 
them as sort of teenagers. Uh, oh no, I suppose he's about the same age actually. He's just a slight bit older, I guess. And then them as adults. And Ansel Elgert plays him when he's older. There's a lot of actors in it. I don't even want to list them all. But uh, for some reason, Roger Deakins put his name to this movie. Um, I think it's John Kearney did it. And it's, it just was so long, dreary, predictable, boring, awful performances from a lot of people. It's just, there's so much going on in it. And even though Roger Deakins' cinematography, it, like, I can't say it looks bad. The, the, the scenes with all the ash falling in the museum look really nice but the actual film is just torturous to fucking sit through it's a shame he put his name to it but would not recommend after that then there's two re coming up here so there's two then one then a, another one um three that were at the horathon festival last year one of them is the girl on the third floor which actually only went on netflix this weekend i do not fucking recommend it it's a horror film with cm punk so you know the quality is already abysmally low but he moves into this new house uh, to do it up before his girlfriend arrives over and they're going to live there and whatever else. But the house is haunted from the horrendous past of prostitutes being murdered there and all kinds of shit. But the house is pretty much alive as a... Like, the plug sockets just squirt jizz and all kinds of fucking shit. It's just... <laughs> it's just nonsense. It's just trying to be this videodrome-esque body horror with mad psychological shit going on. It just fails. He is a terrible fucking actor he's like i thought he was a lot like bruce campbell he's trying to sound like bruce campbell although bruce campbell has loads of charm but he looks like matt Dillon trying to do an impression of bruce campbell while making angry wrestler faces and has the look of that fucker from maroon 5 it's just a lot of shite do not recommend uh after that then this was soul crushingly disappointing i mentioned this a few episodes ago as well is one called the wretched which was the surprise film at last year's Horathon, and I really, really think it should have been The Lighthouse. I thought that would have been amazing. I would have just because I was so geared up for that as well, and they teased us as well. They had a fucking trailer for uh, The Lighthouse beforehand. I was like, ah, shit, it won't be that then. And then they fucking really spooked everyone by having a the Lucas Arts logo come up, and everyone thought, there's no fucking way they have Star Wars on. That would have blown everyone's mind, even though people, a lot of people hated it, which I didn't. Uh, you would have had a lot of people there fucking. Not know what to do with themselves. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's basically a Nickelodeon movie with some horror elements thrown in. Fucking dog shit. Do not recommend it all. Uh, I can't remember the plot. It's like this weird haunted demon who lives near this small lakeside town who possesses this family and tries to take over. I, I actually can't really remember it. My brain is dog shit fucking thinking about it. But yeah, garbage. After that is a very disappointing one. Uh, this is a, another Nicolas Cage one. Uh, it's called A Score to Settle and I just knew it as a revenge movie for some lads who I can't remember did they they kill his brother or his son or someone oh no he's on holiday with his son and he's going to kill the lads who killed his brother something like that and I thought it was going to be full of revenge but it spends a, at least four fifths of the movie him just hanging around a hotel drinking and fucking doing dick all and not really trying and it, it's Again, it's such a shame. When when Nicolas Cage is on, he's fucking on 110%. But when he's not, he just... It's a paycheck movie. This is a paycheck movie, and I can't imagine he got a lot for it because it's fucking boring. Oh, God, this next one. This was something that someone pointed out. This is a horathon one. Someone mentioned after the screening that it was like a Lifetime movie or a Hallmark movie or one of them. And I thought, geez, it really is. It had that level of quality. And then it turned out it fucking was. 
they they ended up being I think they produced it or something, but it, it was a lifetime movie. A shitty fucking these awful movies for people who fucking read now magazine and shit like that. It's the vague memory I have it is it, a young mother and her daughter are living in a house and what is it the the mother or the auntie of the kid comes back and it's like oh i haven't seen you since you're a kid they're roughly about the same age or not far off each other's age anyway and she kind of interjects her way or what's the word interjects that might be the word she worms her way back into the family and starts manipulating and causing uh, trouble and all kinds of shit and it's just really fucking dumb and embarrassing acting and like the girl in it like she looks like i think the actress is 22 or something like that she's playing a 16 year old but she behaves like she's about 10 and i'm just like this is cringy to fucking watch it's just the worst dialogue ah everything is bad about it although what's his face is in it the actor i fucking like um it's not jeremy gardner he looks like him maybe it was him the chap who's in fucking Blue Room. I'm not forgetting his name now altogether. But I'll look it up. Because I don't want to sit here. Fucking remember it ten minutes from now. And then I'll just say it in the middle of a different movie. Oh yeah. Tora Birch is in it as well. Who I hadn't seen in fucking forever. Mason Blair. That's who it is. Or Macon Blair. Really enjoy him. He's in Blue Room. He kind of looks like Jeremy Gardner sometimes. Though, but he's briefly in this. And even then he can't save it. And I like him a lot. I think he's really good. But man. And this is Lucky McKee as well. Who's done some fucking dark really interesting horror movies it was just total fucking arse and then finally this movie i actually thought i was getting brain damage the more i watched it was so so fucking terrible and i suppose i shouldn't i should have known what i was getting into but i didn't expect it and it was a movie by luke besson who made nikita and he made leon and this looked like it was trying to be in the same vein as called anna and holy fucking shit was this movie terrible it's like it's like it tried to steal elements of both nikita and leon and elements of red sparrow and put them all together in one of the most unconvincing uninteresting terribly acted brutally choreographed unbelievably fucking stupid action movies i've seen in a long time like this is the thing you you see a lot of people complain about action movies especially ones that star women and they think okay she'd never be able to kick the shit out of these five lads or whatever and there's times where yeah i'd agree if i see scarlett johansson doing it as black widow i fully believe it she'd kick the bollocks out of all of them because she's a super like proper super spy and she looks like she can but then you see harlequin beating up fucking 10 lads and you're like okay i don't really believe that and until she does cocaine but with this movie i can't remember who this actress is but she's actually frighteningly thin in it and she's able to take on six foot units at all times just being able to throw them over her back and on i think try make it somewhat believable like if you look at red sparrow red sparrow was really smart in making it more about how she manipulates these people to to take them out rather than having big intense fight scenes this is like a try to have the two of those and if you look at nikita and well more so nikita yeah a lot of it is kind of gunplay and action and stuff like that but in this it's like they saw Atomic Blonde and said, we can do that. And it's like, well, no, Atomic Blonde is believable. I believe Charlie Theron can kick the fuck out of these people. I don't believe whoever this person can. And it's just, I, I remember just the whole time in that movie, I was just like, when is this going to end? Like I said, most of these movies are interchangeable as the worst. But this one, I just remember by the end of it going, this is just. And it tries to have a big 
oh, the twist in it. I'm getting a headache just thinking about it now. There's so many fucking twists that they thought were absolutely... Like, they thought people were going to be running out of the cinema screaming because they were so fucking clever in the twist when they weren't. They were just awful. I was embarrassed by every single revelation in that film. And I'm embarrassed I wasted time going to see it. And I think that was one of those days where I only went to see one movie as well. I like to go see two at a time. That was a waste of a day. Absolute. Actually, I think that was the same day I was going to see Toy Story 4 and I went to that instead. And I'm a moron for doing so. So yeah, I don't know how long I've been fucking yapping there. I tried. wanted to be as quick as I could. 15 minutes, not too bad. Um, absolute bollocks. Do not fucking recommend watching any of those 12 movies. There's a few other movies there that I can at least give some recommendation to. Like there's some movies I, I rated quite lowly that I didn't like per se, but there's enough there to maybe see them. Like Hole on the Ground, an Irish horror one, fairly weak, but it has some moments. That one Hagazusa, I didn't like that at all really. It just seemed like a witch ripoff. And a lot of people, big fans of the movie, don't like hearing that. Uh, but it does. It tries to match the, the atmosphere and style of it with similar folk horror elements. It just bored the fuck out of me. Uh, the Repentless Killogy was a big letdown as well it's a, a slayer movie now i know you get what you fucking pay for with that but it was based on these three ultra gory really fun action-packed music videos they did and they said we're gonna actually make a plot line out of this and have a wraparound story before a gig in the movie starts the wraparound story looked like it was shot a week before the gig on a fucking dv camera the, the drop in quality between the music videos and the wraparound stuff is fucking significant then like the likes of Polar, which is a bit of a mess but reasonably entertaining. Fucking Velvet Buzzsaw, which was had its moments but also part of shit as well. Three from Hell. All these movies, that are, they have something to them. Even if I didn't really like them that much, there's enough there that I'm like, yeah, they're not they're not completely terrible. But Good Boys to Anna, I hated all them. So that's a brief rundown of the shittest movies I saw last year. But now we're going to get to the, the meat of this fucking podcast. This is going to be so long. I actually can't believe how long this is going to be. Um, <laughs> now that I think about it so I'm going to really rush through them but a couple of runners up before I before I get into it so uh, there's a 10 or could be 15 minute short film that was on Netflix made by Paul Thomas Anderson called Anima he shot it on 70mm and it's basically two or three music videos for Tom York's latest album he does music for him anyway for movies so it's really in that same kind of atmosphere stuff that he's done before but the music video it's, he did one a few years ago actually where it's him going through a bunch of doors it's similar to that but this is just this blew my mind the music's amazing the visuals are amazing the choreography just blew me away lords of chaos is another one i fucking really enjoyed it's um what's his fucking name now ah i can't remember i forgot his, or he did he directed fucking spawn and a few other he directed polar as well i don't know why i can't think of his name but it's basically an account of the murders within the Norwegian black metal scene in the early 90s. And it's based on a book that wasn't even considered accurate either. It's more or less fictionalized. So <laughs> a lot of fucking uh, the serious black metal heads hated it. Which I that just made me kind of enjoy it more. Because a lot of those true cults were better than you at everything. Because we like this type of music people are cons. So... If it's upsetting them, it's doing something right. So that that got on board for me. But no, I want to get this director's name now. It's annoying me. Um. Oh yeah, it's like it's a good cast here. Rory Culkin, Emory Cohen, Jonas Ackerland. That's who it is. Yeah. So if you're looking for a, a totally accurate account of what happened, you're not going to find it here. But it's very very entertaining. They're all American in it, uh, even though it's set in Norway. They have American accents. It's really fucking raw and visceral. 
and quite funny and just enjoyable. So I think if you're a black metal fan, I think well most black metal fans might enjoy it. A lot the really really st- like heavy black metal fans are gonna hate it. And I mean violently hate it. And people who aren't into it will enjoy it. But it's it's annoying people who I find annoying. So that's enjoyable. Mid nineties as well. Thought was really fucking good. Serious director. It might have been debut. I can't remember if it's Jonah Hill's directorial debut, but it's an amazing film he directed based on his life growing up skateboarding and it's shot on 16 mil look genuinely looks like it's from the mid 90s and it's just really entertaining uh and this is one that i would briefly mention before under the silver lake uh i bought the blu-ray of this this week it was 22 quid in most shops and i got it for a fiver on adverts so i came out on top there but really interesting uh has a really good hook a lot of good mystery to it lovely looking movie it's a lot of fun it took a while for me to get into it though and it's kind of it's it's like someone who's trying to do their own version of Mulholland Drive and they're kind of a hipster but it's the director of It Follows so it's really nice looking obviously I saw A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood last year I'm just going to list a few more Beats which is this uh, Scottish uh, rave music rave culture set in the 90s movie Come to Daddy with what's his fucking name Elijah Wood this crazy dark comedy thriller kind of horror really interesting uh, John Wick 3 y'all know everything about that so that's that was good fun the art of self-defense this really really mean-spirited dark comedy the same vein as uh observe and report it, fe- it felt like it's in the same world as that where it's really muted dull mean-spirited ugly comedy really kind of violent dark he, he basically he's a guy who got bullied who decides he wants to join a martial arts crew and there's just some dark shit goes on that's all i'll say about it but it's very very offbeat strange and i just loved it so there's just a few i'm sure there's a lot more i can mention but i want to just get get cracking on this now so here is the top 20 so coming in at number 20 is midsummer or midsummer however you want to pronounce it and it's ari aster's second movie well second i think it's his second feature I know he's done some short films and stuff like that, but it's the same director as Hereditary. And this one is set in Sweden? Is it Sweden? Or Switzerland? Or one of them fucking places anyway, but it's uh, during the Midsummer Festival. And it follows a couple whose relationship is seriously on the rocks. Uh, Florence Pugh and Jack Rayner are the two leads. Uh, we also have Will Polder in there as well, who is known as the actor with the eyebrows. But the two of them are pretty much about to break up when Florence Pugh's character reveals that her family have just had a horrible, tragic murder. And what happens then is Jack Rayner feels obliged to bring her along because she's in such a desperate, emotional, uh, horrible place to bring her along on the, to the Midsummer Festival on a trip with his college friends because they're going to go over and study it and it's about well there's a whole undercurrent because i mean even hereditary had this very silver lining of uh intense family dysfunction and things like this is more relationship dysfunction uh so you have these elements going throughout it while there's some very unusual and potentially dangerous things going on at this festival It's, it's like being in a cult nearly when they get there and they have to go through all the traditions. Um, and I, obviously I'm not going to reveal a lot about these movies when I talk about them. But this is one that it, it's uh, 
it evokes a lot of strange culty movies like The Wicker Man and things like that. And has some pretty jarring, horrible fucking violence. I mean, if you've seen Hereditary, you know the same kind of thing you're going to get into. But this is a much slower burn, much... I suppose it's a very different, much nicer, brighter visual style to it too, which is quite the opposite of the dingy, horrible look to Hereditary. But this one is just there's some serious, dark fucking stuff going on throughout, and amazing acting from everyone. I think Florence Pugh puts in a blinded performance. I think she was overlooked for any awards because she really goes 110% in this one. But yeah, it, there's some rough stuff going on in it, but it's just constantly intriguing, really intense visuals, just a general tension. But that weird, nice music, like I tell, spoke about at the end of uh, Hereditary as well, it's just nice music playing throughout it that just seems so out of place and weird. But really left a good impression on me, and uh, I'm looking forward to watching the director's cut, which I haven't seen yet, which, as far as I know, isn't necessarily more violent. I think there's a few extra bits, but it's it's more plot-driven, because a lot of the time a director's cuts come out now, it just tends to be like, oh, look, there's a bit of CGI blood here, but it's not like that here. This one is just really interesting. Highly recommend it. Then at number 19... We have one that was, I was a bit apprehensive, not hugely apprehensive about it, but I wasn't sure where it was going to go. And I ended up absolutely loving it. And that was Dr. Sleep. Mike Flanagan has constantly proved himself as being a fucking top class director. He knows horror well and he knows how to to direct it well and to what to show, what not to show. This has an unusual story. It's, I think actually I might have talked about this the other day. I feel like I feel like I was talking about it. Uh, but Ewan McGregor plays uh, Danny Torrance from The Shining from the movie so this is him as an adult and what's going on with him and how The Shining comes back to affect him which links him to this little girl who might be being pursued by what is effectively vampires in a sense uh, <laughs> although they're not quite vampires and it's just really really well fucking directed there's lots of atmosphere it's not scary I'll say that much it's not scary at all but it captures the atmosphere of Stanley Kubrick's movie and a direct sequel to the actual Doctor Sleep or the actual Shining book so it, it works as a sequel to both the movie and the book and it's just fantastically well done a lot of people aren't happy with the, the last half hour or so of the movie I actually thought it was done really fucking well so I was quite happy with it but there is one shot in this whole movie that looks off to me apparently after seeing some of the behind the scenes stuff it wasn't even as bad as I thought it was but it, it just looked really weird to me at the time but Amazing performances. They did a very smart thing in recasting the people who were in the original Shining. Rather than using some sort of de-aging or CGI, they just got people who look like them. The guy who looks like Scatman Carruthers is... You'd swear it's him. It's so fucking well done. But yeah, that one, absolutely tremendous. I pretty much trust anything Mike Flanagan does. The Stephen King adaptations that come out now are fucking so good. And it's a perfect companion to the Shining movie. It's just tremendous all around and i'm really glad a lot of people love it it unfortunately didn't perform too well because people are twats but it was fucking really good and i thoroughly recommend it so at number 18 is ad astra now that's one that i i really enjoyed when i saw it in the cinema but the more time i had to think about it the more i absolutely fucking loved it i think my again this is another one i think i spoke about recently i think i've pretty much spoken about all these movies in the last like month or so just when i talk about the oscar stuff well, i've actually only been doing this a month but uh just in terms of the oscar stuff and what i think should be up i think i've been given little bits and pieces of info about all these movies because they all stuck out to me in some way but this one is just absolutely fantastic it's brad pitt is an, a top class astronaut who is sent on a mission to mars 
to talk to send a voice recording uh, to his dad, played by Tommy Lee Jones, who has gone missing but has appeared somewhere in space on a beacon. Kind of a shit uh, description I gave there, but th- that's the basic idea of it, and it's very existential seventy style drama. Uh, just in a kind of space setting and, and the problem with this movie is they, they advertised it as if it was going to be an action movie there's one action scene in the whole movie and they fucking show that in the trailer as if like you're in for thrill a minute kind of stuff that's not what it is it's really slow just existential I've used that word so many times but that's exactly what it is it has this really just ideas about life and death and mortality and everything else and it's just really fucking smart and I Totally recommend it. And Hoyt Van Hoytman did the cinematography and it just looks blindingly good. So thoroughly recommend Ad Astra. And I I don't know if it's on Netflix. I think it's going to be going to Netflix soon. But it's one that's just criminally overlooked. People went into expecting the wrong movie and they got something better. So I thoroughly recommend watching that. After that we have at number 17 a Netflix film. One of a few Netflix films. I think there's three or four on this. And it's one that I've been anticipating for a long time. And had I heard about it 10 years ago, or not, maybe not 10 years ago, but 8 years ago, whenever Breaking Bad finished, I'd have been worried. But because of how good Better Call Saul was, and because Vince Gilligan's totally behind it and directing it, I knew I was in good hands. And that is El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie. So the fact that it says that, it's kind of like a Star Wars story, much like Solo and Rogue One. So I wonder if there's going to be a few kind of things within this universe which i'd be fully fucking welcoming because vince gilligan is just a master but this takes place directly after the end of the series of breaking bad so now i know most people have seen the series if you haven't i mean i'm not going to spoil what happens in the series but you're following the character jesse pinkman after the events of the show so i mean like you you know he survives (laughs) like there's no way of talking about it otherwise but look that's the way it is but I'm not going to explain what happened in the show. So you're still up for a treat in terms of where that goes. But this is the events after the the series. Where Jesse Pinkman's going. You're retracing a lot of his steps. And he's trying to come to terms with what happened. He's got PTSD. And it's just a really interesting take on uh, the character. Stuff you don't usually get to see with him. And behaviour you don't usually get to see with him. And you get to see a lot of the characters you saw before. And some even flashbacks to before Breaking Bad. Uh, and even during. So it's just... It's an absolute treat for a Breaking Bad fan. It's effectively, it's exactly two hours. It's basically a double bill. A double bill TV movie, almost. It's just terrific stuff. And I think, again, some people were saying, like, oh, it wasn't that great. I'm like, you're not going to get five seasons worth of Breaking Bad quality in two hours. Like, this is a very specific set of events directly after the show. And I think they did a fantastic job of it. So, big thumbs up for me and I, I mean it's on Netflix watch the whole series on Netflix if you haven't watched it and then watch that your infantry and watch Better Call Saul which by the way is back tonight in America and should be on Netflix tomorrow but the way they're doing it is like they're showing the, the first episode on AMC in America and then the second episode is going to Netflix tomorrow or something like that if I don't have both episodes tomorrow I'm going to be fucking raging that's all I'm going to say so yeah El Camino tremendous uh, at 16 this one is probably up a lot higher or maybe lower, I suppose, in terms of what this is, uh, for than people would have expected. They probably would have thought I would have had this much higher, but I still absolutely loved it. It's just that I preferred all the other stuff I saw ahead of this. And that is Avengers Endgame. I thought that was fucking superb. I mean, after 25 or so movies, I can't remember how many it is, but about 25 fucking movies, they have 
a three hour showdown to fucking really just bookend the whole thing and they just did an amazing job of it. You have literally every fucking Avenger you can think of making an appearance in one of the most jaw dropping spectacles that you could fucking ever want to see. If you're especially if you're a big fan of these like I'm I I consider myself a fan of the movies and stuff like that. I never really got into like I wouldn't consider myself a huge Marvel buff in terms of the comics or anything like that and all the little like oh there's that character like I don't know any of that shit I just love the movies and this one really blew me away I might prefer Eng- or uh, Infinity War to it but they're kind of they're pretty much a package deal it was originally going to be Infinity War Part 1 and Part 2 but they decided to change the names which I think was smart Um, but as a double bill they're just fucking incredible I, and smart press decision or what would you call it Public, publicity decision to not have anything in the trailer that goes beyond 15 minutes in the film so stuff could never be spoiled or you couldn't like see some person doing something and go okay that hasn't happened yet it's going to happen an hour in i've predicted what's going to happen no this doesn't give you a chance to do that everything you see in that trailer is going to be in the first 15 minutes and then you're totally fucking lost after it but yeah absolutely loved it i think i love all these movies really but this one was really just fucking takes the cake for this year after that this one is just criminally fucking underseen and i wish more people got to see it and i think it's on netflix yeah it is on netflix i made a a post about it recently it's thoroughly recommended a really i suppose bittersweet dramedy uh called thunder road and it's written directed and starring jim cummings and i think i don't know whether he won an oscar he was at least nominated for an oscar or he might have uh maybe it wasn't an oscar I'm going to check this just to be sure. No, it didn't win an Oscar, but uh, it, it was nominated and won, pretty much won everything. I don't think it was any, I think it was only a nominee on a couple, but it was a short film called Thunder Road. And it was a 13 minute long take of a guy doing a eulogy for his mom. And he's a cop and he's having a bit of an emotional breakdown while he's doing it. And his mom's favorite song is Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen. The movie opens with that short film effectively it's reshot to, to slightly different context for the character and certain things happen differently uh but it's a 13 minute amazing long take really like serious emotional acting out of him but it's really awkwardly funny at the same time and there's several long takes like that throughout the movie like i, I love them anyway uh, but his performance is top class it's really good like drama to do with grief and I suppose, psychological breakdown and internalized rage and all this shit it's just handled so fucking brilliantly and jim cummings is criminally overlooked and i think that movie was criminally overlooked and i would give it my highest recommendation i, I was blown away by it so yeah that should be on netflix and it's well worth watching it's basically him piecing his life together is the the plot of the movie after that you have what i could argue as the feel-good film of the year i don't think i saw a movie last year that was more just raw enjoyment than dolomite is my name and it's based on a real guy rudy ray moore who he's a weird guy he's kind of schlubby shitty comedian not a very good musician not a good actor not good at martial arts he can't really do anything but he's passionate about all of it and he just commits 100 percent to every one of those things so he may not be a good actor, but he's like, I'm going to fucking make a movie. He may not be a good comedian. I'm going to go up on stage and do it. He may not be a good singer. I'm going to release fucking 20 albums. And his whole thing was that he wanted to get into the black exploitation action movie scenes. And things like Fred Williamson and... Uh, oh, I knew he said his name. Black Belt Jones. What the fuck is his name? Jim something. Ah, he's in 
fucking Edge of the Dragon. I, it'll come back to me. But uh, or Jim Kelly, I think that's what it is. So he wanted to make movies like those, uh, but obviously he didn't have the chops to really do it. So he said, "Fuck it, I'm going to do my own." And he made a movie called Dolomite, and that kind of became his character in real life. Um, and he just—it's just such a good-natured, good-spirited, fucking fun movie with some amazing performances, particularly Eddie Murphy, who he's the star of the movie. And it was his project. He really wanted to get it going, and it's just so enjoyable. The real scene scene though is Wesley Snipes. He is fucking hilarious in this movie. I just everything about it is just so. I, I mean, good natured is pretty much the only word that's coming to mind here, but it's just thoroughly enjoyable, likable, fun. You're just in a good mood after it, and it's about movie making, which is all like any movie about movie making always just has me on board. It's just it's uh, something Richard Stanley said recently when he was in the Severin Film Cellar. He said he was talking about the Stuntman, a movie I've wanted to see for years with Peter O'Toole. He said, this is a movie about filmmaking that shows how fun it is. Most movies about movie making show how uh, how much of a nightmare it actually is. And I was just thinking of uh, Living in Oblivion there the other day, the Steve Buscemi movie, where he's a, an independent film director who's getting a chance to do his own big movie. And it's, or like, I think he's a short film director, he wants to do his own movie. And it, it just shows how it's chaotic and everything going wrong and how much assholes actors are and things like that. This movie would make you want to make a movie. It makes you want to just get up with a group of friends and say, I want to go out and make a movie. This is just absolutely fantastic. And it's another Netflix original. And I had watched this as the first movie in November after 102 horror movies over the months of October. So I really needed something like this and it fucking hit the spot 100%. Thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. And then to another degree, I suppose, of extremely enjoyable and upbeat and fun but also very bittersweet and really nice at the same time, is Toy Story 4. A movie that nobody fucking asked for, and it ended up being fantastic. I don't know how they did it, but they did it. And it just, it it has the same sort of atmosphere as Toy Story 3 had, although I do prefer 3. Yeah, but this one kind of has a lot of emotional weight behind it. Like, the first two movies do have that. They have a kind of life lesson sort of thing, but the third one had very hard-hitting kind of life lessons in it. This is along the same lines and it's just really fantastically done. The animation as well is unbelievable and it has Keanu Reeves. So like this one is just top class. And I think let me think, I think it is the best animated film I saw last year. It's the only one in my top twenty. Uh so yeah, I, that says it all there. Fucking superb. And I I think it won the Oscar for Best Animation and it deserved it because it was amazing. So I mean, I don't even really need to sell this one. You know the Toy Story movies are going to be fucking amazing, so there you go. Now, this next one is... Well, it only actually came out on January 10th, but I got to see it in December last year. There's a few films on this list that I got to see early, and this is one of them. So, see, I've I've won this over. I'm actually thinking of doing a little section about this. About I'm not going to do it now, obviously, because I want to get through this list, but just about when I can classify a movie as part of my watched list so I mean there's stuff that I watched in 2017 that didn't come out here to 2018 and I included as my best of 2017 whereas everyone else was like oh it's the best film of 2018 so it's it's a bit finicky but I've I've decided not long ago that I'm just going to do it for whatever year I fucking see the thing so for me this was a 2019 release and that is 1917 and I've already talked about this one in fairly extensively in a few episodes now, but like I said, it's all about the spectacle. It's 
I, when I think back on it, I don't love it as much as I, I thought, but I still think it's fantastic. It's still one of the best things I watched last year. It's just not better than all the other ones I had ahead of it originally, or I had it was ahead of. Um, and even just looking at my list again now, I might even move this back a few notches behind Endgame maybe, but just thinking about the movie, it's so fucking well-directed, well-made. The acting is kind of like Dunkirk in that it's just you're following someone you don't really have enough emotional connections to them you're just in the situation with them amazing cinematography action set pieces the sound design is blisteringly good and it needs to be seen in the cinema I think there's fucking screeners out there that people have watched and this is why I don't understand why they give screeners to people because they're just not as good as fucking seeing something properly on blu-ray or in the cinema this is one for the cinema and if you're going to watch it on blu-ray you need some serious surround sound headphones Highly recommend this. Now, this next one, uh, again, I mean, like I've I've already mentioned El Camino, but I'm including TV movies here. This one was made for HBO, and it's one that people would have wanted 15 years ago, and they only got it now, and it still fucking worked. And that is the Deadwood movie. And fucking hell, this one packed an emotional punch because the series was so good, and I didn't get into it until only recently too, like a few years ago, when I bought the box set one of the best series I've ever watched the dialogue is jaw-droppingly good and not a lot of people talk about that because I mean when you talk about HBO The Wire usually is the first thing people think of although nowadays probably Game of Thrones but The Wire like with its dialogue and story was so good this is a show that is just littered with amazing dialogue that no one fucking talks about uh, or at least not enough people and Obviously it got cancelled very unfortunately and it left on such a fucking amazing cliffhanger like where are they going to go with it? This answers the important questions. There's obviously going to be side stories that they don't answer every question for but they're not vastly important. This movie answers all the important questions in just under two hours and it's just to be in the company with all these characters again is just fucking superb i absolutely loved it amazing cast amazing music the direction's fantastic the writing is superb it just feels like you it's the closure you've wanted for the last 15 years and you finally have it now and it's just outstanding definitely up there as one of the best i've actually lost count of what number of these films are at now so oh that was a uh, that was actually the first 10 so now you're in the top 10 of my 2019 list and i'm actually gonna take a quick look at how fucking far i am for time I'm actually not too bad. I might I might actually make this maybe not under two hours, but uh reasonable amount of time. <laughs> I'm definitely for for the next one when I do my top one hundred I'm not gonna have any fucking reviews or anything beforehand. I wanted to get them out of the way quickly and it ended up taking me a fucking hour to talk about shit. So when I do my top one hundred it's gonna just be solely the top one hundred. I might actually record that during the week just so I can release it itself at some stage. But yeah. Number ten is a criminally so many of these are fucking underseen but this is criminally underseen and it's called The Standoff at Sparrow Creek and it's the same producers behind the likes of Dragged Across Concrete Braun Sabak 99 Bone Tomahawk and even Mandy like there's just amazing people behind all these these little independent gritty raw just movies that you know don't have a single fucking studio's claw on them and this one is just one of the best and it's about a former cop who is he's part of a militia now has to investigate a shooting that took place at a police funeral but he's investigating it from his little militia headquarters it's like a warehouse where all these lads meet up 
and they're like okay we need to solve this fucking problem what's going on like cops were shot at a funeral today what are we going to do about it and they realized that it was potentially someone within their militia because the type of gun used at the shooting is now missing from their collection and they need to pretty much do an interrogation they this cop has to interrogate these people and find out who's a potential rat and it's just or a potential i suppose yeah it could be a rat but it's there's so much intrigue and intensity and mystery involved in this movie and amazing performances it's almost like a play but this movie needs to be seen by people i don't know why people aren't watching it it's amazing looking as well just really strong dialogue and it's a fucking directorial debut too i can't believe like i'd be fucking so proud of myself if this is my first movie this needs way more attention so yeah that's standoff at sparrow creek then at number nine one of the most just all-round fun enjoyable very camp over the top and mysterious movies of last year was knives out uh ryan johnson i think rubbed a lot of people the wrong way when he made the last jedi i know a lot of people hated that film a lot of people love that film i'm somewhere in the middle i think there's a lot of good stuff in it and there's a lot of shit in that movie as well but there's people out there practically giving death threats to ryan johnson saying you've ruined star wars you need to fucking retire and blah blah it's like no this chap has made fucking looper and brick two fucking great movies so i'm not gonna listen to any shite that they have to say but this movie is just fantastic it's that it's that agatha christie murder mystery cluedo-esque atmosphere to it with a is it cluso i think his name whoever's murder in the orient express i can't remember the fucking uh french detective but it has that sort of atmosphere only it's daniel craig and he has a sort of foghorn leghorn southern drawl to him uh but fuck me the cast in this movie is colossal you have daniel craig chris evans anna de Armas, uh jamie lee curtis michael shannon don johnson tony collette lakeith stanfield christopher Plummer, and edie patterson with a small appearance from frank oz as well so there's loads of recognizable people in there amazing performances from everyone it's just a fun romp and it's the kind of thing you know you're going to enjoy watching several times because there's going to be loads of little threads and little things you didn't notice the first time that are going to add up this time just tremendous fun i love murder mysteries anyway if you've seen the movie clue that is one of the best ones uh but this is just tremendous fun i absolutely loved it i said tremendous so much i sound like fucking donald trump i'm saying it so much so i need to think of some new words to describe my love for movies so this is fantastic now at number eight we have Le Mans 66 this is one i talked about pretty extensively as well when i was doing my oscars breakdowns i've actually talked about a lot of the the, the next few movies in my oscar breakdowns in fact almost all of them so you, you would have had a good idea of what um what these are all about from what i've said before if you've listened but as i said this is also known as ford v ferrari which i think is a stupid fucking name it follows matt damon christian bale as uh the creators behind a ford car who are going to race it against the ferrari and the ferrari ends up as like the best car at the time and they're going to compete at le mans 66 the 24 hours of le mans in a car that they've built together with christian bale driving it and matt damon designing it and it's just absolutely blistering particularly in the cinema it was really good because it's just so tense but um yeah just i thought it was absolutely fucking fantastic and i think that's on blu right now if it is go out there and get it because it's just blinding and if you have a good sound system it would be particularly good but i saw that in the cinema and I, it was one of those ones i wish i fucking saw on the imax because the imax would have been amazing with it um so yeah 
thoroughly recommend Le Mans 66. Up next, we have the best picture of 2019 or 2020, or I suppose 2019. Um, this is one that I've spoken in length about as well because of the last couple of episodes I was talking about just how original it is and how interesting it is and how much it actually deserved to win best picture, and that is Parasite. Uh, only released over here this year, but I saw it last year, and it just fucking blew me away. It was just so fun, unique, interesting. Unlike anything that's out there. Although, now that I say that, apparently there's some Indian movie from tw- or 1999 that seemingly has a very, very similar plot to the kind of first act of the movie, let's say. Uh, how similar it is elsewhere, I don't know. But it, from what I read about it, it does sound quite similar. But I don't know. This is this still feels extremely unique. And everything that comes after that, I can fucking guarantee does not happen in that original one. So... Uh, and as far, as far as I know, the, the case is a, it's not going to work. <laughs> but I think they just saw that one best picture in their Sarah and they want to get some money out of it. But probably won't happen. But yeah, Parasite, outstanding. Bong Joon Ho, incredible director. Fucking see this as soon as you can. Amazing. And I realize as well, when I talk about movies I like, I feel like I run out of uh, my vocabulary. When I'm talking about movies I don't like, I can talk all day about what makes them so shit and what I don't like about them. But when it's something I love, I find it kind of hard to find the words more than I loved it. It's amazing. But for all these, these are just the 10 like or 20 best. All these movies I loved out of 100 and something I saw last year. I can't remember how many I saw. So I feel like I might repeat myself a lot here. But sure. And because I've talked about a lot of these before. Yeah. Fuck it. Parasite's amazing. And now we're on to number six, which is joker and this is one that really fucking surprised me like i thought it was going to be class anyway because i like i enjoy todd phillips when he's good joaquin phoenix is one of the best actors out there maybe not the best speech giver but one of the best actors and when i saw he was involved in this i thought this should be cool the teaser trailer i saw i wanted to avoid everything for it as much as i could but the teaser i saw was class i thought i'm gonna enjoy this and then when i finally saw it, i was like holy fuck this was amazing a blinding performance really really just engaging the world that it builds like i said i love gotham and it's the atmosphere that comes along with it and this movie still feels like a bit new york as well especially some of the more iconic new york areas are used like those big steps but the night the kind of night atmosphere has a, a gotham feel to it and that's the main thing and i just i love where it went and it's surprising too and i think being all rated was a smart move because it doesn't just feel like they're throwing in swear words or violence just for the sake of it it just feels like the story they wanted to tell could not have been dumbed down to a 12s rating so hats off to them and it's just fucking fantastic i'm dying to watch it again and then you have the last a second last netflix film that's on my best list this one I spoke about in length as well before the Oscars and it's I Heard You Paint Houses aka The Irishman. And this is a three and a half hour gangster epic which just feels like a love letter to all the gangster movies that Scorsese's done before and even beyond. Uh, just it's the culmination of all of these stories and all these characters come together in what feels like their last hurrah almost. And not in a sort of we're going to do one more job kind of way but in a sort of we're, we're past our level of importance or past our sell by date we're not as important as we once were they illustrate that really well in this movie but it's just a sprawling gangster epic which just goes across several decades with very very good cgi to or uh, de-aging 
special effects. Something I normally don't like, but they did it fantastically here. Some scenes, I will say, didn't do it well. Some aren't the best. Some scenes are so good that I, you'd swear they fucking shot them 20 years ago. It's outstanding how they did it. Uh, and there's videos out there of people doing deep fakes which look better in certain scenes, but you have to think about how they were doing this. This isn't just them trying to deep fake over a performance. Like They had to use incredible technology to shoot this movie, and they did a fantastic job. And it caught the details better than a deep fake would. Because you see some of them, like you see that video that came out recently of they have Robert Downey Jr.'s face on. Um, what's his face? Quite literally, what's his face? Um, fucking Doc Brown, anyway, in Back to the Future. I forget his name, Christopher Lloyd. And it looks fantastic, it still looks really good, but there's still something about it that looks not quite real. And that's what would happen with deep fakes on this. You can get little details that look fantastic, but with this, you're actually capturing the real performance with the special effects and that's why I think it's just fantastic but the movie's just amazing anyway in, in every sense in Scorsese you know what you're getting it's always going to be top class and at three and a half hours it's so fucking watchable I feel like I could watch it again the next day when I watched it so that's that's a strong testament to how well you can make a movie that's pushing four hours well three and a half hours and still makes you want to watch it again the next day that's a rarity especially in this fucking day and age where 90 minutes is too long for some people but anyway, we are down to number four. Now this movie, I uh, this movie along with the Irishman and Joker, have kind of jumbled around a few times. I had this was my number one until my number one came out, and then I had Joker briefly ahead of this, then I had this ahead of Joker again, and then I had the Irishman ahead of both of them, and then they they kept swapping around. But the more I think about it, the more this belongs at this spot. Um, although you could jumble it with three as well, but it's it's gonna stick here for now, and that is. The most exciting fucking director working today, along with the Safdie brothers, S. Craig Zahler and his movie, Dragged Across Concrete. This movie is just so fucking perfect. It's everything I love. about Like, crime is my favourite genre of movie. A lot of people think it's horror because I love horror so much, or even drama or comedy. No, it's crime movies. And his movies, particularly this one and Broad's Havoc 99, although Bone Tomahawk is... Slowly becoming, uh, quickly becoming, a top ten favorite of all time for me because I adore it. But he has a level of just grit that, to his movies that no other movies can match. He goes places with dialogue and character types and character arcs and decisions and violence that no fucking director has the balls to do now at all. He just because the whole thing about him is. It's not about what these characters fucking believe or what he believes or what anyone believes. It's about the character themselves. So you have Vince Vaughn, who I think is a Republican actor. And there's people out there saying, oh, why are you casting him? And obviously Mel Gibson, you know, we all know what he was up to before. People saying, why are you casting these people? It's like, because they're fucking good actors. And they are. And their characters are mean pieces of shit. But you don't have to be a good character in your movie. Well, you don't have to be a good character in terms of how you're written. But you don't have to be a good person. Your character is allowed to be a piece of shit. And Zahler's movies will have characters that are pieces of shit. And you're going to be with them for a long amount of time. Especially here at 2 hours 40 minutes. You're stuck with two guys who in some ways are totally right. In some ways are way too iffy. And there's some mean grey areas with all the characters in this. And Tori Kittles is the third character. So you've Mel Gibson, Vince Vaughn, Tori Kittles and uh, Michael Jai White. And Jennifer Carpenter. So you have all these amazing actors coming together. Different backgrounds. Different atmospheres. Different jobs. Different outlooks on this whole crime underworld. 
and it's just superb. I'm not, I'm not going to actually explain what the plot of the movie is. Uh, I think just watch it. You get a, an idea of what's going on very quickly. It's gritty. It's slow. It takes its time to get to learn these characters. It's seriously ugly at times in terms of violence and the way people are treated. And you're dealing with probably the... Like, here's the thing. These characters are bad. You're following bad guys. But the people that they're against are so, so much worse. And it's just brilliantly done. I can't recommend this one enough. I mean, I've, I've said that about all these movies so far. But this one is just fucking amazing. I highly, highly recommend it. Actually, no, that's the thing I say all the time. Highly recommend it. That and fucking tremendous. I need to fucking get a thesaurus out and start fucking bumping up on my fucking new words. And fuck me, one of them that I say too much. But fuck it, that's what I always do. This outstanding and here's a fucking pain in the ass as well i remember when this was the the jameson or not jameson i think it's the diff dublin international film festival was on last year they had a surprise film like they do every year and i thought i'd love if that was dragged across concrete i said ah there's no way they'd fucking show that the next day we showed dragged across concrete last night as our surprise film and i my fucking stomach turned inside out i was like i cannot believe i missed that in the cinema several months before i actually got to see it devastating but yeah, amazing movie. Get the Blu-ray. I think all three of S. Craig Zeller's movies on Blu-ray are reasonably cheap at the moment. So you got Bone Tomahawk, Bone Selvak 99, Dragged Across Concrete. Three of the best movies of the decade. There's a, a little teaser for what's coming in the next episode. He is the best working director out there at the moment, of, well, of the new directors. And along with the Safdie brothers, they have a very special career to leave behind them. So keep an eye out for S. Craig Zahler. And he writes novels too, so read all them. Although I haven't read a single fucking one of them, so I can't really say much. Number three. This was a surprise. I didn't expect this to be as amazing as it was. Now, that's not to say that I didn't think it was going to be savage. I just didn't think I was going to love it to the extent that it would beat out Dragged Across Concrete or Joker or The Irishman. And that is one I also spoke about during this Oscars run-up, which I've done with the next two as well. The Lighthouse. Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe put in career best performances here, especially Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe just goes to another level. It's amazing looking, it's tense, it's dark, it's fantastical and confusing and strange. There's some really, really great horror elements in it that are also thriller elements, very funny moments, just top performances from the two of them, so much tension and it looks fantastic too. It's shot on legitimately like 100-year-old fucking lenses on 16 millimeter film and it, everything you see in camera happens in camera in terms of intense weather and fo- like fog and smoke and all that shit all happens for real just fucking blindingly good and it's still in the cinema i think that and parasite are still in the cinema at the moment so if you can see them go see them because they are just fucking superb and this I, I was lucky enough to see this at the lighthouse conveniently titled cinema last year and it's just I can't, I can't recommend it enough. Absolutely superb movie. Oh, I suppose the plot of it. Uh, two lighthouse keepers going mad in a lighthouse. There you go. So, number two. This movie I only saw in December. And it stuck at me since. And it immediately became almost my favourite. It wasn't going to be that number one, let's be honest. But it almost because this was just incredible. It's one of the most raw, visceral, emotional dramas I've seen in years. Probably since Blue Valentine. Because it deals with similar subject matter. And that's Marriage Story. Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson are a couple. And it's Noah Baumbach directed it. But they are a married couple. Who are 
basically at the beginning of a divorce and it shows all the procedure of them getting the divorce getting lawyers what they have to do what how it's going to affect their child and what's going to happen with them breaking up and whether they should stay together and it shows all the good times all the bad times what they love about each other what they hate about each other it just it does such an amazing job and some of the the dialogue scenes and the breakdowns and it's so raw and visceral and real and it's outstanding and i could watch it immediately again now and there's some great uh supporting performances from the likes of ray liotta and alan alda but this the absolute stealer of scenes in this movie is laura dern she is well she, i wouldn't say she steals the movie i think she's absolutely amazing in it she won an oscar for her performance in it which was fucking totally deserved when i say stealer scenes i mean in terms of between herself, Ray Liotta and Alan Alda and all them, like they all put in amazing performances, but she really is just stands out. But Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver are amazing in this. How Scarlett Johansson wasn't nominated for fucking best act, or wait, she was best nominated for best actress for this. How she didn't win is what I'm trying to say is fucking totally beyond me. And like I said, it's a tough one to call because Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker was incredible too, but Adam Driver in this just does blew me away so real and so fucking just amazing uh, he should have won that and it's unfortunate that he didn't but that's sadly the way it is in this uh fucking stupid industry but we come to number one and i think before people even fucking click play on this they knew exactly what this was going to be because i've been raving about it ever since i saw it i was lucky enough to see it two weeks in advance and from then i was like yep best of the year nothing will beat this and I wasn't even being stubborn about it. I was hoping stuff would, but it didn't. And that is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This movie is just perfect in every single way. I've seen it four times now. I have a friend of mine who has watched this maybe 12 or 13 times, potentially more. And that's only in the last few months. He is addicted to it, and I can see why. Because this is a movie that is so rich and detailed that you feel like you're living in it when you're watching the movie. It's rare, even in movies I love, when you're watching it, there's times where you're aware you're watching the movie. And not in a sort of, the movie's broken the fourth wall or it's lost it, just in that you're sitting in your house or in a cinema and you're there watching the movie. This and Uncut Gems are two movies this year where for a solid, well, for this one a longer time because it's a longer movie, Uncut Gems is a good half an hour in that movie where I actually forgot I was in the cinema. I was so invested in the characters that I believed I was there. And that's the same with the... when I watched it on Netflix. still had the same effect. This movie there's. Pretty much for the entire 2 hours 41 minutes run time. I just am transported. To 1969 LA. With characters I enjoy being around. In a new. Look at this world. With. These people aren't real. Like a lot of the people in this are real. You see a lot of celebrities. And obviously. The character Sharon Tate is a real person who's she's more in the background though I always have to illustrate that I think a lot of people go to this thinking oh it's a movie it's the Sharon Tate movie it's like no she's in the background but all these directors and actors and stuff like that they aren't real but you wish they were they're just the most interesting fun characters the rela- the friendly relationship between Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt is amazing it basically follows Leonardo DiCaprio is an actor named Rick Dalton who was huge in the 50s as a TV cowboy and now he's kind of trying to find his feet with some bad guy roles in tv and potentially some movies and brad pitt is a stunt double and it's about their working relationship for years and how they keep each other 
medley saying, I suppose. Just, well, mostly Brad Pitt keeping Leonardo DiCaprio on his feet. It's just so, so enjoyable. Every fucking aspect is blissfully fun. I think it looks fantastic too. Robert Richardson did the cinematography and had he won at the, the Oscars, I would not have been upset as well because he is just out fucking standing. But of course it was going to be Deacons. But this movie is just so textured and detailed and rich. And like I said, there's parts, there's several, like maybe for 15 minutes worth of driving in this movie and all of it is riveting. And you see the background of LA, just Brad Pitt milling through in his car. Stuff you see for literally a second. But it's actually just incredibly, excruciatingly detailed to look like the way it was in the 60s. Like, you'd swear it's an actual bit of footage from the 60s. They put that much work in. And it's stuff that only either buffs or people who are around the 60s would notice. The average film girl is not going to fucking notice that detail. A lot of people just go, why are they driving? It's like, no, this is, this is throwing you into a world that you either lived in before and aren't living in now or you've never fucking lived in. And it's just amazing and i love every fucking single bit of this movie i've watched it several times i'm gonna watch it several more times it's uh it's rapidly becoming one of my favorites of tarantino's it could be in the top three maybe top four it's just outstanding i absolutely love it and it's enjoyable i ah i i've been repeating these words so many times now that my head is actually on fire because i mean for the last 20 movies I've talked about. I've just said how enjoyable and fun and entertaining and whatever. And there's really only so many ways you can describe these movies. But these are just. This movie's perfect. It is my favourite of 2019. It's one of my favourites of the decade. This was never going to be topped. It nearly was. I say nearly because I was think- at the time. You know like I said when you see something your emotions are high. You're like wow that was the best thing I've seen. Or that was the worst thing I've ever seen. But then a few days to breathe you're like actually no. It, it's still brilliant but or it's still shit. But it's not the worst. It's not the best. That was Marriage Story. When I saw Marriage Story, I thought, that's the best of the year. But then I thought, no, okay, a few days, a couple of days. I was like, no, still once was on in Hollywood. I would have included Uncut Gems in this, but I didn't get to see it last year, unfortunately. So I only saw it this year. So to me, even though for a lot of people, especially in America, are like, oh no, Uncut Gems won the best of 2019. For me, so far, is the best of 2020. And I mean, I'm not sure what'll top it, but fuck it, we'll see. There could be a complete surprise. But that's my top 20. I'm going to just do a quick recap in case you forgot or you skipped to the end so you have at 20 midsummer at 19 dr sleep at 18 ad astra at 17 el camino at 16 avengers endgame at 15 thunder road at 14 dolomite is my name at 13 toy story 4 at 12 1917 at 11 deadwood the movie at 10 the standoff at sparrow creek at 9 knives out at 8, Le Mans 66. At 7, Parasite. At 6, Joker. At 5, I heard you made houses, a.k.a. The Irishman. At 4, Dragged Across Concrete. At 3, The Lighthouse. At 2, Marriage Story. And at number 1, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So, finally, I reached the end of this mammoth fucking list. I, I'm definitely going to have to do two parts for the fucking the top 100. There's no way in fucking hell I'm going to be able to condense that down to fucking one hour or two hours and do 100 movies and include reviews and stuff on that so i'm gonna i'm gonna change how i'm gonna do that one but this is shaping up to be my longest episode now so who knows uh i'm actually i'm just doing it in two parts next time there's no fucking way (laughs) because i mean i nearly could split this up into two episodes but i didn't really end the first episode properly so yeah just deal with two hours of me fucking talking shite to you it's considered the the first part of this to be a nice big build up uh so yeah 
I'm amazed if you made it this far of me just pretty much saying the word amazing or shite over and over. But thank you as always for listening. I've also found that some some of the mysteries have been solved. A friend of mine, Carl, from who's Irish but living in Luxembourg. That's my one of my Luxembourg listeners. There's three others. I don't know who the fuck they are. But uh, all these mysteries are coming together now. It's all it's all adding up. But we'll see. Someone please take responsibility for this one. I've one from Malaysia. Who the fucking hell do I know is in Malaysia or is even listening to this? Totally bizarre. But if you're from there and you're listening to this episode, please let me know. Uh, because who the fuck? Who the fuck is from Malaysia? Uh, well, besides millions. Anyway, thank you for listening. This was exhausting. My throat is sore. And I'm looking forward to doing it all again next week uh, in much longer episodes. I think I'll do. I think I'll record the entire 100 and then just release it in two parts between like three or four days apart or something and then just do a regular episode on the friday yeah maybe i'll do that might actually record this like wednesday or some shit we'll see but again thanks for listening you're all cunts goodbye